Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our unofficial restart of the group learning program. And in our last session, there were students who asked for a session to be able to talk with me and get to know me better. They wanted to ask questions and kind of understand more of my life so that they could then use those lessons to help them in their life and in their progression on the path to enlightenment. So that's what we're going to be doing today. And here shortly, I'll be standing over the session to our moderator, Max, to actually conduct today's session and allow all of you to ask any questions that you like, and I'll provide answers for those. For anybody who's joining us for the first time as the unofficial start to the group learning program, I would like to welcome you. Our official start is on Sunday, 9th of August at 9 p.m. Thai time, but we've invited new people for today as our unofficial start to get to know your teacher. This group learning program has been going on for the last six months, and there's been hundreds and hundreds of people who have come into these classes to learn the teachings of the Buddha through this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. And they've been learning and practicing these teachings in order to improve the condition of the mind through training the mind with the teachings of Gautama Buddha on this path to enlightenment. And we're actually restarting that six-month program essentially today or Sunday, depending on how you look at it, so that we can start from the beginning. Even though there's been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who have taken in this content over the last six months, there's been kind of a core group that has been progressing, learning the teachings throughout the last six months. And that core group who's taken in most of the teachings has really progressed and made a lot of progress in learning and progressing in their practice towards enlightenment. And some of those people actually joined at different stages throughout that six months. So now is an opportunity for anybody who either started somewhere within the last six months or has just found out about this program to actually start from the very beginning on Sunday at nine o'clock Thai time to be able to progress through this entire book and learn with the guidance of a teacher of how to learn and practice the teachings of Gautama Buddha. So we're gonna get started with that on Sunday, August 9th at 9 p.m. But today, what I'm going to be doing is just turning over this session to our moderator, Max, and all of you to be able to ask any questions that you'd like to know about my life or about anything that I'm involved in or anything that I'm doing. You guys are welcome to ask any questions that you like because in studying with a teacher and 
putting your confidence and time and effort and energy into learning with a teacher, it only makes sense that you would be interested to learn more about the teacher themselves. So today I'm making myself available for you to ask any questions that you like. Of course, you can ask me at any time anything that you like, and I'm more than willing to help you. But today is kind of honoring the request of the students to be able to have a dedicated session where you can actually ask questions directly to me and I'll share the answers with you. So with that said, I'm going to just turn this over completely to our moderator, Max, and then I'll just come in at the very end just to say goodbye to all of you guys. So welcome, glad you're here, and here's Max, our moderator. Yeah, so welcome in everybody. Good to see a lot of familiar faces as well as plenty of new ones. So welcome to this unofficial start of the next group learning program. Usually we do talks on Sundays and then we do meditation and chanting on Wednesdays. But since we're about to start the next six month program on Sunday, we thought we'd dedicate today to getting to know our teacher, David, better. So I thought this could be a good time for us to introduce David to all the new students as well as give any of the existing students a chance to ask anything. And I know, David, I've known you for a while now, but there's still plenty of things I'd like to ask, which I think could be helpful to my practice and others as well. So what I suggest is that we start by just reading out a short biography uh, from the book, Developing a Life Practice, and then we'll move into a interview. So I will start with a question. If anyone has any questions, feel free just to type them into Zoom or Facebook or YouTube or wherever you happen to be watching this and I will get to those as well. You might see me between asking with my head down, uh, that's because I'm also moderating this class as well as well as being the interviewer here, so not being rude, but I just uh, if you see me that's what I'm doing. So perhaps we can start like that. David Roylance is a dedicated practitioner and teacher of Gautama Buddha's teachings who has been part of the Thai community since 2001. He visited Thailand for the first time in 2002 and brought the traditional Thai healing arts back to the United States of America to share with people in the Western world. His traditional Thai healing arts centers located in the Washington DC area provided traditional Thai healing arts to clients and educational opportunities to students to explore the Thai healing arts, Thai culture, and the teachings of Gautama Buddha. David is a published author with books on the topics of traditional Thai healing arts and the path that leads to Nibbana. David has taught Gautama Buddha's teachings since 2005 in the United States of America. In 2015, he closed his businesses and relocated to Chiang Mai, Thailand to be closer to the Thai culture and the Thai community of Buddhist practitioners. David shares Gautama Buddha's teachings with household practitioners and ordained practitioners in Chiang Mai, Thailand and around the world through courses, retreats, and special events providing guidance to help people attain enlightenment, a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. Okay, David, so perhaps I'll take the liberty of starting here. I'm interested to know, David, what was your childhood like? My childhood was quite dark, actually. It was quite um, difficult. When I was born, I was actually born to a single mom, essentially. I was born in 1974 in Washington, D.C., and my father and mother had split up just prior to my birth. 
And my father had wrongly assumed that my mother was cheating on him. And he thought that I wasn't his baby. I had a sister prior to me who was about two and a half years older than me. And while my mom was pregnant with me, my dad was leaving with another woman. And he actually ended up punching my mom in the stomach. And uh, luckily I survived. And when I was born, I didn't have a father. My earliest memory was when I was four years old and I was living in a mobile home. In Maryland, I was living in a place called Lions Creek, which has, I'd say, a couple hundred mobile homes. And if there's anything you know about mobile home parks is these are tend to be people who are less wealthy. They don't really have as much money. So I grew up, you know, very, very poor. My mother was on government assistance. She was taking food stamps. She was working for the U.S. government and also living on food stamps, trying to support my sister and myself. And as I was growing up, it was quite tough because I didn't have a fatherly figure. And around four or five years old, I had a stepfather who came into the picture and started to live with us. And as we grew up around about eight years old, around six or eight, we ended up moving to a new development that was a townhouse. So my mom had kind of worked her way up with making a little bit of money and having a stepfather in the home. He provided a little bit of money. So we were able to move to a little bit more substantial house, which we call a townhouse. And I moved to Waldorf, Maryland, which is in Charles County. And there I grew up and was doing okay, but in our household, it was very hostile, very aggressive, lots of anger. There was verbal abuse, there was physical abuse, there was sexual abuse that was happening in our home. And it was hard as a child growing up in that because what I learned is hostility, aggression, anger, all of these things. And by the time I was about 12 years old, I started having a lot of trouble containing all of this. And I started having a lot of behavioral issues and they were actually going on earlier, but they didn't really kind of culminate until I was about 12 years old. Earlier in my life, I was taking this hostility and aggression and I actually was, I was a bully kind of between fourth and fifth grade and sixth grade, I kind of turned into a bully and started bullying people and uh, treating people very hostile and very aggressive. And by seventh grade, again, all of this mental and physical and sexual abuse in our home really started culminating into a lot of difficulties in my life. And eventually my family took me to a therapist and started to have discussions about what was going on. And that was the first time that I told somebody about what was going on in our home. And from that point, there was various things that transpired, you know, criminal investigations and things like this. But at that point in time, the statute of limitations had expired. So there was nothing legal that was being done, but all the same things continued to happen in the home to the point where as I was aging and started realizing that there was wrong things going on in the home, you know, I would be getting beaten and beaten and beaten with 
hands, with straps, with dog leashes, with belts. And I knew when the beatings were coming and I would actually lock the door to my room, but that didn't stop it from happening. My stepfather acting on request of my mother would actually break down my bedroom door, literally break the frame off the door and come in and start attacking me with some kind of instrument. And one time it actually went across my face and I had a strap of a belt across my face. And there were actually times where I would call the police and try to get the police involvement. But, you know, I was growing up in the 80s and police would come and they came one time and they basically said, well, if you were my son, I would beat you too. You know, and, you know, as as a 10 year old child hearing that from a police officer, you know, I didn't call the police anymore. What I actually started doing is I actually started fighting back. And uh, at one time I actually started learning, I was used to play football or soccer, and I used to put my shin pads in my rear. Uh, so if they were hitting my rear, it, it wouldn't hurt. But the problem is that the beatings weren't just focused on my rear. So I would get lots of beatings for various things. There was never any discussion or talk or educating me or helping me to understand how to make better decisions in life and that hostility and aggression migrated into my behavior in school where i wasn't interested in going to school or if i was at school i was kind of a class clown or i was a bully and things like this and eventually i got kicked out of seventh grade and sent to what they call an alternative school this is kind of like the 30 or 50 worst students in the county are kind of collected in one school because they can't go to regular school and you have to kind of go there and kind of earn your way out to go back to normal school so over the course of about a year that's what i did and worked my way back into regular school and i never had things that i could actually use for myself so my family wasn't really buying me the things that I needed, just very basic stuff. If there was anything that I needed or wanted, I needed to provide it for myself. So at the age of 12, I started my first job delivering newspapers. And then I started working at Domino's Pizza and Hardee's and Roy Rogers and Shoney's and all these different places to just earn a little bit of money and be able to pay for clothes and things like this. I got into a lot of trouble, you know, I, I used to steal, I never got caught for it, but I used to steal from stores doing shoplifting. I used to get into fights and fighting. And at one point in time, I actually got kind of a first serious girlfriend. I was about 15 or 16 and she was 18. And, you know, we were together and, you know, really had a lot of affection for her. and she ended up getting pregnant and I decided to drop out of school and start to work. And I was going to, you know, really get a good job in order to take care of her and take care of this new baby that was on the way. But after she was about one month pregnant, she actually ended up dying, not associated with the pregnancy, but she ate something when we went to the mall, she ate at one restaurant and I ate at another restaurant. And what we found out later through lots of different things is she actually got E. coli bacteria and she died at the age of 18. And this sent me into a very, very, very deep depression, you know, losing 
a girlfriend, my first girlfriend, serious girlfriend, uh, losing the baby that, you know, we were expecting that we were going to have a baby at age 16. And I ended up using alcohol quite extensively. This is when I started dabbling with drugs, marijuana, LSD. One time we put a little bit of crack cocaine into a marijuana joint and really my life kind of spiraled out of control because I wasn't going to school. I was using drugs and alcohol. I was going out late at night, things like this. I was even selling a little bit of drugs here and there and life just got worse and worse and worse. I ended up stealing my mom's car at one time and actually crashing it and wrecking it and pretty much totaling her car. And then everything kind of led one thing to the next in the county court system, the juvenile justice system, decided to send me away to a group home. And I found out later that this was actually from my mom. She actually went to my probation officer at the time and talked to them and told them that, you know, I was out of control, that she couldn't handle me. And they all agreed kind of behind the scenes to send me away to this group home. And I went there for about 10 months and it was absolutely the best thing that ever happened to me. Getting out of my family's home and getting into a constructive, structured environment. There were many male counselors and some females as well that were really all about helping young men like me that were having troubled times to learn some skills, you know, personal skills, relationship skills, job skills, to be able to enter back into the community and make better decisions and live a better life. And by the time I left that program at the age of 17, they had signed me up to get my graduate equivalency diploma because since I had dropped out of school, if I was going to go back to school at the age of 17, it would have been back to ninth grade because I never completed any grade past eighth grade. I never completed ninth grade because I dropped out from all this depression of my girlfriend dying and all that kind of stuff. So they helped me with getting my graduate equivalency diploma, which is essentially taking a test and then you have a high school diploma. And from leaving that program at the age of 17, I then entered right into college. And I went to a community college, which is kind of like a two-year college, kind of a local college where you just show up for classes and go home. And the beauty in this is while in this program for 10 months, I started spending more time with my grandparents because when I was growing up, it was my grandmother and my grandfather who were really providing any kind of teaching or love or support. And through going to this program and kind of taking a time out from my mom's house, I really did not want to go back to my mom's house after this program. So I had worked it out where my grandparents were willing to have me come stay at their house. And my grandmother was going to take me to school each day for college classes. And I really lucked out because my grandparents had just blue collar jobs growing up, but they had saved a lot of money for my mom to go away to college, but she never did. And then my uncle never went away to college and my sister never went away to college. So I knew that there was this money that had been saved up for somebody in the family to go to college. So when I was coming out of this program, I asked my grandparents if they would be willing to support me to go to college. And after they talked things out, they agreed that that's 
what they would do. And I lived for about a year and a half with my grandparents while kind of taking catch-up classes in college. I couldn't really take full college classes because although I had what was considered a high school diploma, I didn't have the same education as somebody coming out of high school. My writing skills, my comprehension skills, some of my other skills weren't quite up to where they needed to be. So I used those three semesters in junior college and community college to kind of figure out what I wanted to do in life. And I decided that I wanted to learn about computers and business and be able to go away to a four-year school and actually get my bachelor's of science degree. So after three semesters of junior college, I went away to a four-year school called Salisbury State University on the Eastern shore of Maryland. And from there, that's where I started to apply myself in college and taking real true college classes and starting from the beginning. And it was quite beautiful because I didn't know anybody and nobody knew me because I didn't go through the typical high school system. So when I went to this school, I didn't know anybody at all. So when everyone was going out and partying and drinking and all of this stuff, I had already given that up and decided that I wasn't gonna get back into it. And I just focused on graduating from college because I really wanted to honor my grandparents and that they had saved their money for all this time and I didn't wanna waste their money. But at the same time, they didn't pay for everything. I still had to work during college in order to pay for various expenses and things like this. And I eventually, during college, realized towards the end of my college career that if I just took two winter classes that I could graduate a whole year early. So that winter, I decided to take two extra classes. And just prior to that, my grandfather had died who was really instrumental in my life. He was the real true father figure in my life and my grandmother providing lots of love and support. So when he died just prior to this January winter class session, it really kind of shook me a lot. And I really put a lot into learning so that I could hurry up and get out of college. And it was in that January session where I started experiencing symptoms that people called bipolar disorder, where I didn't sleep for like a whole week or two. And my mind started becoming very delusional and had hallucinations and became somewhat paranoid. And I ended up getting discovered by the campus administrative staff. And not long thereafter, I went to the hospital, but they couldn't take care of me at this particular hospital. So they ended up transferring me to a state hospital. And then I got discharged and was told to kind of take the semester off. But I wasn't interested in doing that. So I came right back to school. And within two weeks time frame, the mind had gotten right back to where it was having hallucinations and delusions. And the campus police came, they took me in handcuffs to the mental hospital where I was put down in five point restraints. I was put into a straight jacket. I was injected with all kinds of drugs to kind of resolve the hallucinations and paranoia and psychosis. And I was sent home to take the semester off and the summer off 
and I was told that I was mentally ill and I had a defective brain and that I would need to take this medicine for the rest of my life and I was highly medicated to the point where I would sleep 22 hours a day sometimes for multiple months at a time. They were just trying to make my mind sleep, make my brain sleep. They thought there was a problem with my brain chemistry. And this was a really hard time for me because when that happened, my girlfriend at the time, my second real serious girlfriend, she broke up with me. Uh, her family convinced her to do that because I was mentally ill. And I didn't work, I didn't have a job, I wasn't going to school, I felt like a failure. Once again, falling into a very deep, deep, deep depression. And working my way out of that, eventually getting back into school, getting lots of jobs in professional life and so forth and so on. But your question was mainly about childhood, so I thought I'd take you all the way through to college. But in our home, there wasn't love, there wasn't affection, there wasn't hugging, there wasn't telling each other that we loved each other. It was bashing each other, putting each other down. It was if somebody didn't do what you agreed with, hostility and anger came out. And that's what I learned growing up. And I tried to spend more and more and more time with my grandparents because when I was there, those things didn't happen. We would actually go out to hospitals. Uh, my grandmother, my grandfather and I, we would volunteer our time at veterans hospitals in America, donating food and supplies and helping talk to the veterans if their family hadn't been around to spend time with them. We would spend time with them. We would go out and do things together. My grandmother would take me around shopping, would take me with her friends. So in the summer breaks, I would spend lots and lots of time with my grandparents. And as soon as I would go back to my mom's house, within a couple of hours or a couple of days, I was back on the phone with my grandparents, begging and pleading for them to have me come stay with them again because I didn't want to stay with my mom. And when these beatings would happen and when I would see that there was no affection from my mom or my stepfather or my sister, I would oftentimes sit in the room and just contemplate about how I wish the world was a better place. And I didn't understand how I had so much love in my heart, being willing to give love to other people, but those people weren't able to give love and affection back to me. And I always craved and desired for a better place, a better world, a better world in which to live where children didn't experience this kind of aggressiveness and hostility from people that are supposed to show love and care. I remember at the age of about 17, laying on my bed at my grandmother's house, now being in college and starting to work and get a job and have a car. I remember having realizations at that time about observing how I would want something and I would feel like if I just got that one thing, I would be happy and that's all I ever needed. And then once I got that thing, I would observe how that happiness didn't last, that it would dissipate. And I didn't hold on to that or try to figure out what that was. But I remember at the early age of 17 having that realization and observing how my mind did that and just kind of put it in the past. But I still remember that realization at the age of 17. 
So my life as a child was very dark, very difficult, very challenging. I was so happy the more and more I got away from that. In fact, when I graduated from college, I moved away to a whole other state from my family. And within a few years, they started following me and started coming and moving to that same state. But I've been constantly making decisions to try to get further and further away from my family. And perhaps that's maybe even one of the things that brought me to Thailand is just getting away. And one of the things that I noticed growing up, starting at the age of 17 or 18, I always had lots of Asian friends for one reason or another. It wasn't really a decision that I made. It was, you know, I had a group of Filipino friends starting and then Indonesian friends and Vietnamese and Korean and Chinese. And even when I went away to college and knew nobody, one of my best friends was a Filipino person. And I always observed going in and out of my Asian friends' homes that they had things that I didn't have, which is they had lots of love. They had lots of respect for their parents. They had lots of politeness and kindness. They all worked together in order to achieve some goal. And this really intrigued me. And the more time that I ended up spending with Asian people, the more I saw their home life and family life was completely opposite of what I grew up with. And I craved that. I had a real thirst for it to the point where my second most serious girlfriend, who was Indonesian, her family pretty much adopted me to become part of their family where I was pretty much living with them five or six days out of the week. And one of the other things I observed when I was growing up is how my family always had expectations for me. And they would say, David, why don't you do this? And, you know, you're just doing this. Why don't you do this? And then, okay, I would apply effort and I would try to meet those expectations and I would meet them. And then my family say, well, why don't you do this? And then I would apply effort and energy and meet those expectations. And then they would say, why don't you do this? And I just, by the age of about 20 or so, I realized that there was just these never ending expectations from my family and I kept meeting those expectations, but their expectations kept changing. By the age of 20, I kind of decided I'm no longer going to try to meet my family's expectations because their expectations keep changing and their expectations aren't necessarily what I need in life. So that's when I started to really start pulling away from my family and going in a completely opposite direction. And the more and more that I did that, while still maintaining love and compassion for my family, but the more and more I became my own person and making my own decisions, not trying to fulfill others' expectations, the more peaceful I became, the more content I became, the more settled, the more stable that I became. But I was still dealing with this so-called mental illness and taking medicine from the age of about 21 all the way up until I was 44 years old when I finally got rid of it altogether. Thank you, David. Clearly, very challenging childhood and a lot of exposure to a lot of what the Buddha was talking about, right? Talk about you know, the truth of discontentedness and impermanence right there. I mean, yeah, thank you for that. Was there, 
much exposure to any spiritual practice in your childhood? Were your family religious at all, or did you seek it out yourself? My family baptized my sister as a Lutheran, which is a Christian denomination. But for me, they never tried to convince me to do one thing or the other. They just said, you know, you're kind of on your own, do whatever you like, it's up to you. So growing up, I visited a lot of different churches, uh, visited some Mormon churches and every type of church you can imagine, you know, Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, you know, you name it. You know, I was in and out of different churches all the time, even got involved later in life with some friends who were practicing Muslim teachings, but very little exposure there. Some friends with uh, Judaism, uh, some Jewish friends, you know, very little exposure there. And I appreciated all these things, but I didn't understand the practice part, right? Like all I understood is, you know, showing up on a particular day in a particular time, doing some type of worship and then going home and maybe memorizing some scriptures. But I didn't understand the whole practice aspect. So luckily my family allowed me to just dabble and do whatever I was interested in doing. And it wasn't until I started spending time with Thai people that I started getting exposed to Buddhist teachings. And they never asked me to get involved in Buddhist teachings. They never told me to get involved. They never told me that it would make my life better. No one ever sat me down and said, okay, you know, you really need to learn Buddhism. It was just, you know, by the time I was 27, I had met the first Thai person and she had two suitcases, no money, no job, no nothing. She had to leave the U.S. within a week but had no way of doing that. So I had her come live with me and I said, you can stay with me. You know, by that point, I was making quite a lot of money in the IT field and was living on my own and had a really nice place to stay. I was like, you can come stay with me. You know, I'll be able to take care of you. And the more and more I learned about her situation, I decided to marry her in order to help her stay in the country and take care of her. And as part of that, we ended up going to Thailand in December of 2002. And that was where I really kind of started learning or observing, not learning, but observing this Buddhist practice. Because when I went to Thailand, I was in Bangkok for the first five days. But in the darkness of night, we went out really far into Isan, which is eastern Thailand. And I knew nothing about Thailand at that time. And you know, by 1 a.m., 2 a.m., like we're in this deep, dark village with no lights whatsoever. And when the sun rises the next day, I mean, I'm in this village that is just, you know, wooden shacks and, you know, barely any electricity. There's one phone booth in the middle of the village that they were really proud of because it could make an international phone call. And they were really proud of that. And, you know, I was in this village where people hadn't seen a foreigner for like 20 years. There were children in the village that had never seen a white skinned person before. And I was out in the dirt street playing soccer or football with some of the Thai children. And there were little girls peeking through bushes with flashlights to see me. And there were people coming up to me and looking at my hand and running their hand through my hair and touching my skin and almost like some kind of celebrity in the, in the village. And it was in this village that they had also a temple 
and the monks came for the wedding to the house. And that's where I got my first exposure to Buddhism. And this was my first wife. Now, this is my second Thai wife. We've been together for 13, 14 years and will be until the end. But my first Thai wife, this is where I first got my first exposure and kind of seeing the different ceremonies and things that they do in Isan around marriage and these kind of things, seeing the family values, seeing how people took care of things and observing what happens in this remote village. Uh, so that's where I got my first exposure to Buddhism. And it was there that I decided that this event that had happened of visiting Thailand and really once again, shaking me up and seeing like, wow, there's this whole nother world where people treat each other with respect and kindness and politeness and there's gratitude for elders and there's this deep, deep, deep culture in Thailand. It really shook me up and showed me that America isn't the entire world, you know, because when you grow up in America, a lot of times you think like this is the world. And when I landed in Thailand and saw this whole other side to the world, I decided I wanted to get more and more insight into what that is and what that entailed. So that's where I started really diving into Buddhist teachings, which came with Thai massage because I brought Thai massage back to America. So in teaching and offering Thai massage, that's where I started really getting into uncovering the Buddhist teachings and sharing them with other people. Right. So you're in your late 20s by this point. And you just discovered an entirely different way of doing things based on generosity, love, wisdom, feeling inspired, right? So those words that you're using, like I didn't even know those things. I mean, I was at the very surface level. Right. It was just kind of like, whoa, things are very different here. Why? I don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand this at all. I, I just, it was like mm. the mind's blown. Like, hold on a second. Like these people treat each other with respect they're not angry they're calm they're friendly they're polite they're warm with one another they're affectionate with one another whoa like what is this like I, but those words that you just used like i generosity kindness all of this like that was just not even in my vocabulary yet right so what happened next because i know that at some point you then decided to open Thai massage chains in Washington, D.C. area. Yeah, so I visited... What was the sort of time frame from there? Yeah, I visited Thailand the first time in December 2002. So when I came back, you know, I came back to my IT career 2003, and I decided to start training in Thai massage and learning Thai massage. And there happened to be somebody who had just come back from living in Thailand for five years who lived about two hours from me. So I connected up with him and started learning some Thai massage through his formal classes. And I started then doing Thai massage on the side. It's just kind of like a hobby to help people in the living room of my condo at the time. And I honestly didn't believe what I was doing. I, I was just doing what I was taught because it dealt with this energetic work and this body work and these treatments. I just applied what I was taught and I didn't believe that I was actually going to be able to really help anybody, but I just kind of did it just to do it because people told me it would help people. But the more I was doing it, 
when I would finish the massage, the clients would just be amazed about how much healing they had received during the treatment. And I was kind of blown away because I didn't really believe I was doing anything other than, you know, step one, step two, step three, step four. I was just doing the application of the body work that I was taught. And the more that I was doing it, the more and more clients were telling me how they were healing and how I was fixing certain ailments that they had come with. And then more and more people started asking me to teach it. And they were like, hey, like you're the only one around here that knows this. So I'd only been doing it for six months, but I was the only person doing it. So I was kind of like the expert. So people were like, hey, you know, we would like you to start teaching it. So by 2005, I started teaching Thai massage out of my townhouse. At that point, I'd sold my condo and moved into a townhouse. I had left the IT field and opened up our first shop doing Thai massage. And I was teaching at home. And the classes, when I offered the classes, I wasn't interested in just teaching the technique because I knew that the technique came out of this very rich culture of Thailand. And I knew that that culture was informed by Buddhist teachings. So it was really the students and the students asking me to teach that kind of drove me deeper into learning the Buddhist teachings and into my own practice. Because in order to be a good teacher, I felt like I had to be a good practitioner. So I started really dedicating a lot of time and effort in my own learning, but there was nobody around to teach me because all the Buddhist temples, the monks, the Thai monks, they didn't speak English. None of the books that I was reading or that I was, you know, I would read like the first three, four, five pages and it just didn't make sense to me. So I just like, you know, a book like Yay Thick with like 400 pages, I would read the first three, four, five pages and I was like, this doesn't even make sense to me. And I would just put it to the side. And I just learned through being around Thai people. And I would just observe what was going on and how they were interacting with each other. And I would observe what was happening between the Thai people and the monks. And I would just kind of, through observation, just kind of observing what was going on. And the more and more time that I spent with Thai people, I noticed they spoke politely and kindly and respectfully. And I just started kind of mimicking without even really making a conscious choice, just kind of being around Thai people. Because at one point, my two massage centers in my school employed about half of the staff was Thai. And the other half was very affectionate of Thai people because they were kind of grew up in this umbrella that David had created. And David was very affectionate of Thai people. So these Western employees were also very affectionate of Thai people and Thai culture too. So I just kind of started to adopt more and more of their practices. And I was spending more and more time in Thailand because by that point I had divorced my first wife and met my current wife in 2007. And in 2009, we went back to Thailand and I wanted to meet her family with this Thai lady rather than just jumping in and trying to help her and then meeting her family afterwards, I decided I was going to spend you know time to get to know her. So we spent three years getting to know each other. Then I came back to Thailand with her in 2009, met all of her family, and I decided without telling her, I'm going to marry her 
But then I went back to America because I had these businesses and she couldn't get back to America because by that point, the economy had crashed and they had stopped giving work visas to Thai people to come to America because that's how I was able to spend time with her in America. So she stayed in Thailand for two years and started studying traditional Thai medicine as a doctor, Thai medicine, Thai midwifery, Thai massage and pharmacist because she was already into Thai medicine and Thai massage at the age of nine. So later she decides to take on a a doctoral program in these studies. So for two years while she was here in Thailand by herself, I was coming three, four, five times a year, spending a month going back, spending three weeks going back, spending two weeks going back. But over the course of a year, it was about three months of the year I was in Thailand. So over that two year period, there was this intensive time of me spending time in Thailand around Thai people doing lots of Thai things. And my wife is from Chiang Mai, her and her family, they're also from Eastern Thailand and Isan as well. So I was spending a lot of time in Chiang Mai. And when she came back in 2011 to America, we pretty much decided that our time was limited in America, that you know it was only a matter of a certain period of time and we were going to move back to Thailand. So that's what happened in 2015 is between 2011 and 2015, I was growing the business and helping it become more and more successful, trying to put it into the hands of other people. And ultimately somebody made me an offer to buy my company for a million dollars and they wanted to purchase it from me. But my interest was to give it to the employees because I was interested in seeing it continue with people who really had a heart and an interest to maintain the culture of the Thai way, not necessarily an investor. So I turned down the $1 million offer, even though I've never had a million dollars in my bank ever, I turned it down and just started kind of slowly closing the businesses and ultimately moved to Thailand in 2015. At what point, Dave, did you start deeply practicing go to Buddhist teachings and also teaching them to other people? So while I was in America from 2005 until 2015, I was always sharing some form of Gautama Buddhist teachings without really understanding what his teachings truly were because nobody had ever provided me any training or any teaching. I was just spending a lot of time around Thai people and a lot of time around Thai monks. So I understood the kindness and politeness and a lot of the other things. So when I was holding classes from 2005 to 2015, I started bringing in more and more Buddhist teachings that I just absorbed through observation of Thai people. But I never understood that there was a path to enlightenment. Never during the time of 2005 to 2015, I would have never told you that there's a path to enlightenment. I would have never told you that I was on a path to enlightenment. I would have never told you that the Buddhist teachings lead to enlightenment. I would have had nothing to share about that because I just was unaware of that entirely. I knew that there was something called enlightenment, but I didn't know what it was or anything about it. 
when I came here in 2015, I actually ended up leaving my wife and my son in America, and they were going to come about three or four weeks after me to Thailand. And I kind of went off on my own. Like I just needed to be by myself. And I just went off on my own for the better part of about three years. And everything that I'd known about Thailand up until 2015 was nothing but goodness and wholesomeness. And, you know, I was kind of sheltered by my wife to a certain extent because, you know, I was always around her. I was always with her. You know, we, we went out into Thailand together. The venues that I was going to, the things that I was going to were all good, wholesome things. And I was always around her, a Thai person. But now in 2015, when I went out on my own, I actually opened a company in Thailand as a private investigator at one point in 2015 and started getting into investigating tourists and Thai people for various investigations that people would hire us to do. And it wasn't until then, from 2015 to 2017, that I started observing the dark side of Thailand and some of the unwholesome things. Because my mind in terms of Thailand was, you know, everything in Thailand is wonderful. Um, I didn't understand the dark side of Thailand. But in this three-year period by myself, I started seeing more and more and more and more and more and more of the darkness. And it wasn't until in 2017, October, I decided to come back and stay with my wife and son. And from 2017, I started just staying with myself, even though I was living in my wife's house, I just stayed in my own room, did my own things. And in August of 2018, there basically two years ago, there was a situation where I had this big flash of energy that went from my feet all the way up to my head and exploded out through my head and left me in this feeling of complete in utter bliss and I felt at that moment that I actually had attained enlightenment it's like a light bulb went off I was like whoa I just attained enlightenment but I didn't know what enlightenment was at that time I had no idea what it was but for some reason I just had felt like I had attained enlightenment and that's when I got up out of my bed I was dizzy I went downstairs I opened the front door to my house a butterfly came into the house and came right up to me on the sofa almost to the tip of my nose and then left out of my house and I went to follow it and I looked outside and it had disappeared and I came back to my computer and there was a post on Facebook that said don't follow the butterfly and I was like whoa and then I went upstairs to tell my wife and she was naked and getting ready to take a shower and immediately, like, I couldn't look at her naked for some reason. It was just like, whoa. Like, I didn't even want to look at a naked woman at that point. And she has a tattoo of a butterfly on her hip. And I was like, don't follow the butterfly. Stop following your wife. You need to be your own person. And I just looked at her and I smiled. I didn't even tell her what happened. She was like, what? What are you doing here? Like, you know, because I just kind of, like, walked into her room. And she was getting ready to take a shower. She was naked. I was like nothing nothing and I just closed the door and I walked away 
And from that particular moment, there was many, 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 many miracles that were happening. And my mind from that flash of energy that went out through my head left my mind very, very discontent and confused. For about a week or two, I had felt like I had attained enlightenment. And everywhere I was walking and going, I felt very blissful. I felt lots of joy. I felt lots of calmness and peacefulness. But slowly that started to degrade and started to dissipate. And I realized that my mind was highly discontent and that's when I started to pursue studying these teachings from the Buddha. And I got into the direct translations of Gautama Buddha's teachings and really dove into learning these teachings of Gautama Buddha. And what I noticed is the more that I was learning and practicing these teachings, the mind started becoming more stable, more calm, more peaceful, more serene, more joyful. And all of this anger and hostility and aggressiveness and frustration and irritation and guilt and shame and resentment and jealousy and boredom and loneliness, all of it started to dissipate to the point where anger wasn't even coming up anymore. Frustration wasn't even coming up anymore. Uh, there was no discontent feelings whatsoever. But what was confusing for me is as I was learning these teachings, the words that I was reading, it was like as if I already knew them as I was reading them and I would read the Buddhist teachings and I was like, I already know that. Like, huh, that's interesting. Or it was him describing what I was experiencing in myself. And then what I was noticing is the words and the language that people had translated his teachings to wasn't accurate. So I started getting on the internet and looking at some of the Western monks that were teaching and their words weren't accurate either. They were using words like suffering to describe what to eliminate. They were using words like happiness of what to attain. They were using words like things that are good attachments or good cravings. And I was hearing these different discourses and I was like, they're not teaching it correctly. Or in some situations, these monks weren't able to describe what enlightenment was. Their students were asking them, what is enlightenment? And they weren't able to give a clear description of that. Or they were asking them, what is suffering or what is dukkha? And they weren't able to explain it clearly. But I was noticing that I could. I was like, I know the answer to that question. And that's when I started to write this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana, because I realized that the things that I needed to share and needed to help other people learn weren't available to the common public. They weren't available in internet YouTube videos. They weren't available in writings on the internet. They weren't available in Facebook groups. Even the books that were from a highly reliable source of the Buddhist teachings and known to be the you know, most direct and clear translations of the Buddha, even they weren't 100% accurate to what I was experiencing in this path to enlightenment. And that's when I said, I need to clear this up and I need to write it down and I need to start sharing these teachings with other people so that they can understand this experience that I've experienced on my own. 
and that's when I started. At the end of 2018, I started to share the first edition of this book, which was maybe about five or six chapters at that time. And then by the time you rolled around, Max, in March or May of 2019, I was on edition three with maybe like 12 or 13 chapters. And then I started adding more and more. And as the mind started to become more and more aware of the teachings, the chapters started being added. And as various students started coming into the Facebook group that I host and asking questions, I started seeing these repeated questions being asked and I had to keep typing out the answers every single time. Or in some of these Facebook groups, I started seeing the same questions being asked all the time and I had to keep typing out all these answers. And I said, well, it would be much easier if I just put it in the book because if people are asking these questions, they must be common questions that people want to know. And like one of the questions you asked that was asked 20 times before you was, how do you love, you know, what's love like in a relationship practicing the Buddhist teachings? So rather than keep saying these things over and keep typing them in Facebook groups over and over, I just decided to write them in the book because then I could just copy and paste the answers from the book into the actual Facebook groups or into our Facebook group or into a private message and things like this. So it was really kind of like the end of 2018 that I decided, okay, like, let's start teaching and so forth and so on and teaching on my own. Because October of 2018, I started teaching at some local temples, but I realized that, you know, you're still kind of under someone else's umbrella and you kind of have to do things their way. And I wasn't interested in teaching their way because they were using words like suffering and happiness and all these words that I knew they weren't the accurate words. So I started slowly moving towards creating my own environment in which to offer and share the teachings. And that's when I started teaching at a local temple here in Chiang Mai that the monks were completely fine with me teaching whatever I was interested in teaching. I started teaching more in this online group, Daily Wisdom, started offering the book and the podcast and the videos. I started being invited by monks to travel around Thailand and teach in Thailand and outside of Thailand, although COVID kind of put a break on that. So I started getting invites to teach different places the more people heard me teaching and what I'm actually sharing. And now the students who are learning they're getting more and more and more benefit because they're seeing the effect of the teachings and actually improving the condition of their mind. And this is how I know that what I'm teaching is going to be helpful is because it's in the Buddhist teachings. You know, I've got tons and tons of books that have really good translations. But what I've done is I've enhanced the translation to make it based on my personal experience, which is the second thing is I know the teachings that I've discovered, they created a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy in this mind. And then when I share it with students, they get benefits as well. And then I'm occasionally in situations where Thai people will come and ask me, what are you teaching? And I will share it with them. And they say, oh, that's exactly what we're learning in Thai from the Thai masters that we know are enlightened. So 
yeah, you must be teaching the right stuff because you're teaching exactly what they're teaching, but you're just teaching it in English. We're learning it in Thai. So I confirmed what I'm teaching in four different ways is one in the source text of the Buddhas, two through my own personal experience, three through sharing it with students and hundreds of students, thousands of students are gaining benefit from that now. And then fourth, the Thai people that are around enlightened Buddhist monks and Buddhist practitioners are confirming that what I'm sharing is what they know in their community to be the actual teachings of the Buddha. So it sounds like this instance with the butterfly was a pivotal moment and you're often talking to us about gradual training and looking back on that now at the time you thought oh this is it i've really achieved it i've done something here but now you all the time you're teaching us this is a gradual process right but it sounds like from that moment you started making different decisions that was certainly a turning point and so i'm interested to know were there any other moments of major realization or major breakthroughs that you've felt were significant in your practice? The most significant turning point for me was those three years being out in society on my own, away from my wife, because that's where I saw how horrible the world really had become, how much misery, how much pain, how much suffering existed in the world. And that's what ultimately drove me to come back to the home that I'm in now. And that's where I started making better and better decisions. And once that big event happened two years ago in August of 2018, that's when I realized that there's definitely a higher power. And as my mind started to awaken, I started looking back over the course of my life and all the various decisions that I've made and things that happened in my life that was actually leading me towards the same path, but I wasn't as aware of it as I was at that particular incident, that particular situation. If I had thought differently, people might've thought that I was having a psychosis or hallucinations or delusions for about a six, eight, 10 month period because the mind was so discontent. It wasn't unsimilar to the times in America where I'd experienced psychosis. The only difference this time was, is I had much more confidence and confirmation that I had what I needed in order to create a stable mind. The reason why I thought that I had attained enlightenment when that initial hit happened, that initial burst of energy, is because I had always been taught that the Buddha sat under a tree and he instantly became enlightened. And I thought at that point, that's how one attains enlightenment. It just instantly happens. So that's why for the first couple of weeks or months, I was under the impression that I had attained enlightenment. But the more that I observed the mind was discontent, I realized that I hadn't attained enlightenment. When I started diving into the Buddhist teachings, I started seeing where he was describing enlightenment is a gradual progression. Then I knew that I hadn't attained enlightenment and it was just a matter of learning more, practicing more, and figuring it out. And I knew that I had what I, I needed in order to attain enlightenment. Because as I was doing various things, I would have various experiences, and then I would read about them in the Buddhist teachings afterwards. So I'll give you an example of that. After about a week or two of going around thinking that I had attained enlightenment, 
and realizing that I hadn't, there was a situation where I thought that everyone else in the world had attained enlightenment and I hadn't. I thought I was the last person to attain enlightenment. And I had this overwhelming shamefulness and disgust that I had not attained enlightenment and everyone else in the world had. And I thought I was the last person. And I felt the misery and the guilt and the shame and the disgust of being the last person to attain enlightenment. It wasn't until a couple of months later that I was reading the Buddhist teachings and he actually taught at one point. He said, don't be the last person to attain enlightenment. He was teaching this and he explained what it would be like to be the last person to attain enlightenment. And that's what I experienced. So there were multiple situations where I was having observation of past lives, for example. I would have those observations and two or three months later, I would be diving into the books of the teachings and the Buddha would be explaining what I had experienced two or three months previous. And this was just happening over and over and over again, where I was having experiences, learning from that, seeing how that made me feel, and then confirming it in the Buddhist teachings that, whoa, like he actually taught that. And then when I would read his teachings, feeling like, wow, like I already knew that, like I I already had experienced that. And this is where I started observing the first human life that I had as a Buddhist monk during the lifetime of Gautama Buddha. I actually observed this very first life that I experienced as a monk during Gautama Buddha's lifetime, which helped me to see that was the reason why I had already understood the Buddhist teachings before actually learning them. When I was in America and I used to teach Thai massage, at one point I had a teacher training program where teachers were learning to become a Thai massage teacher through my teaching. And then they would ultimately go on to become a Thai massage teacher. And I would be teaching them about Thai massage and I would be teaching them how to share the teachings of Thai massage. The language that I was using to teach them back in 2012, 2013, those kind of years, I later discovered that same language in the Buddhist teachings in 2018 and 2019. So for example, I used to tell people back in the early 2010, 11, 12, 13 timeframe, I would say, okay, when you're delivering a talk about Thai massage, it needs to be good in the beginning, it needs to be good in the middle, and it needs to be good in the end. And this was part of the thing that I would always share with my students. And I would be teaching them other things like this. And I was just teaching what I knew at that particular time. But it wasn't until I was diving into the teachings of the Buddha, it was like, whoa, that the Buddha said the exact same thing that I would said. And then, like, for example, in March of 2019, my wife's father died. And I went to her and I said, you know, we should teach the Buddhist teachings at his funeral. That's the absolute best time to teach the Buddhist teachings is at a funeral. You know, we should get the microphone and teach our family the Buddhist teachings. And she said, no, I don't want to do that. But that's exactly what the Buddha used to do. So 
I would like share things with Thai people and I would say we should do it this way or we should do it that way or this is the way that I would suggest doing it or I would teach people and then I would later find out that that's what the Buddha actually taught as well. So this is how I knew that there was already knowledge on board, already wisdom on board that was kind of untapped that were the teachings of the Buddha that just hadn't been opened up yet. And the more that I kind of read his teachings, it opened up the mind and uncovered these residual memories that I had of the Buddhist teachings in a very profound way, in the way that I knew that these are the Buddhist teachings. Where before, when I was in America, just saying things that first came to mind, I didn't know that they were the Buddhist teachings because I, I had never seen the Buddhist teachings. I was just teaching whatever came to mind based on my thoughts at that particular time. So the more that the mind started awakening, the more I tapped into this wisdom and these residual memories from previous lives, and the more I was able to teach and share the teachings with other people to get benefit from them. We have a follow-up from Manal. She says, Teacher David, how did you source the first set of books on the life of Gautama Buddha or readings of his life and practice, which you first started out with? How did you know these were reliable? You touched on that a bit already. And how did you know what to extract as true? So when my wife was here in Thailand from 2009 to 2011, she started visiting a temple in Bangkok called Wat Na Pat Pong. They also call it Buddha Wajana. Buddha Wajana means the teachings of the Buddha. So she had known of this temple and it was really well known for sharing the pure teachings of the Buddha. And during her experience there, I kind of knew that she went to this temple, but I didn't really know anything about it or what it was all about. And when I came back to the house in 2017, she has all kinds of books everywhere. Uh, half of them are about the Buddha, half of them are about Thai medicine and Thai massage. She's got books everywhere. So in 2018, when I had that jolt of energy and there was multiple miracles that happened after that that I haven't ever explained to you guys, I went to her and I said, don't you have some books somewhere about the Buddhist teachings? She said, yeah, I got them a couple of years ago. I knew that you were always going to need them, and I was hoping that you would get to them at some point. And she whips out like 13 books, all in English, from Buddha Wajana. She already had them here in the house. And I opened up the first book, started reading it, and I actually thought that it wasn't very good, and I actually put it down, and I, I was like, ah, it's no good. Like, I'll figure this out on my own. Well, I wasn't figuring things out as well as I thought I was. And I told my wife and she was like, well, what happened with those books? And I was like, ah, they're not that accurate. She said, yeah, but you haven't read them all. You've maybe looked at one of them, but you haven't looked at all of them. Maybe you should look at all of them. And I was like, ah, whatever. So then I had this real interest to become a monk because I thought at that time, I thought that you had to become a monk in order to be enlightened. So I had this craving to be a monk. So I went to this temple in Bangkok that she knows that is really well known for reliable teachings. And that leader of the temple agreed to ordain me as a monk and allow me to live there. And it was a six year program. And after being there, my family left and I was by myself going from making a million dollars a year to 
having multiple houses and bodyguards to Mercedes and motorcycles and trucks and cars and selling all of that stuff. Here I was at this temple all by myself, no family, no nothing, you know, one or two pairs of clothes, a couple pairs of underwear, and I was happily washing and slopping my clothes around on the floor of this bathroom, washing it with a bar of soap. And I was just so joyful that I had gotten rid of everything. I got rid of the money, I'd gotten rid of the Mercedes and the car and the businesses and the family. And one time I had lots of girlfriends and I'd gotten rid of everything. And I just felt such an enormous release of everything that now I was finally going to be a monk and leave everything behind. And the next day, it was time for me to go by myself to go talk to the monk. And he was busy and busy and busy. And a lot of the lay people were coming up to me from that temple. They were kind of observing me. And they said, they said, you're enlightened, aren't you? And I said, well, why do you ask? They said, well, we know how to identify an enlightened person. And we've been observing you and and you seem like you're enlightened. And I was like, well, you know, I'm here to learn. I would like to learn. I didn't say anything at that point. But the more I was sitting waiting for this monk, my mind was just on repeat, trying to figure out, is this really the right thing to do to ordain at this temple and be here for six years? And I knew that that would be good for me in learning with this really well-established monk who really knows a lot about the Buddhist teachings. But I was thinking about my family. My wife at that point didn't have a job. She had no income. And she had my, at that point, six-year-old son back at the house. And I was like, is this really the right thing for me to do at this time? And once I learn, you know, what am I going to do with that information? Because you know, he's probably not going to let me teach for the next six years and I really need to teach. And there was more and more miracles that were happening around me. And what I had come to is I needed to go back home and I needed to figure this out for myself. And I didn't need to abandon my family in order to pursue this path to enlightenment that I felt that I could progress on this path from the household life, it wasn't required of me to become a monk to attain enlightenment. I knew that. And I asked the head monk there and he agreed. He said, yeah, he said, household people can get enlightened as well. So I went back home to my wife's house and I still wasn't looking at these books. And I was teaching in a very well-known temple here called Wat Chedi Luang. And I kind of mentioned God a couple of times in what I was sharing and teaching. A lot of the people that were there had a big problem with me mentioning God in this environment. And I just knew that God was part of the world. Becoming enlightened is not dependent on God, but I knew God existed. So I was teaching at a place where Taurus would come and ask questions. So as Taurus would ask questions, I felt very comfortable answering about the Buddhist teachings, but because they asked me a question about God, I replied. But people had a lot of problems with me teaching that way. So eventually I stopped teaching at that temple and I felt very sad at that time. That's one of the ways I knew I wasn't enlightened is because, you know, people weren't accepting of the teachings that I knew to be 100% truth. As far as what these people knew at the temple, the Buddha denied the existence of God. 
And I knew that that wasn't true. And for about two or three days, I kept having this urge to read this book because these books, I have about 13 of them. And then I have this big book of the teachings of the Buddha, which there's 45 of these. But I kept having this urge to read this particular book, the one about Gama, during this time where people were trying to say the Buddha denied the existence of God. Something kept motivating me to go grab this book. So the first day I grabbed it and I read up to about chapter 15 or 16, and then I put it down, but it was really quite revolutionary. The Buddhist teachings, when you get his actual words, they're very potent and they actually improve the condition of the mind. Well, the second day I decided to pick this book up and I read it some more. And lo and behold, on chapter 18, that's where the Buddha actually teaches about God. So there was this motivating force in the mind that kept saying, go get this book and read this book. And it was over this question of God. And this is the first time I'd ever seen any teachings from the Buddha about God. And I was like, whoa, there it is. That's why I was led to read this book. And the more I read these books, once I saw that, I was like, whoa, these are the real deal. Let me start reading them some more. So over the course of about four months, I worked my way slowly through these books and I never believed anything that was in the books. I read the teachings and then I would contemplate and I would reflect and I would go out into the world, spend two, three, four days or a week trying to either prove or disprove the Buddha. Mostly what I was doing was trying to disprove the Buddha. That's the way you can prove whether he's telling the truth or not and whether it's true, the true teachings is if he teaches something and you can find something that's opposite of that and that doesn't meet the true teachings, then that's how you know this is not correct. This is untrue. But the more that I was reading these teachings and then observing in the world what was the condition of the world, what was the condition of the mind, how did I observe gamma and so forth and so on, the more I was realizing that these teachings were in fact the true real teachings because he was explaining what I was observing in the world, what I was observing in the mind, and the more that I learned the teachings and applied them in my life, the more I noticed the mind became peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So when I was really working through the Eightfold Path, you know, I would really focus in on just like one step sometimes. And I would just work with that one step for two or three weeks. I would still be working on the other steps, but I would just really try to refine that one step, be it right speech, the five factors of well-spoken speech. If I came to that point in the book where it talked about the five factors of well-spoken speech, I didn't just plow through it and get to the next chapter just for the sake of getting to the end of the book. I was on a mission to solve this discontent mind that I had. So when I got to the point where he introduced the five factors of well-spoken speech, I put a pause on reading the books for three, four, five weeks, and I just practiced the five factors of well-spoken speech, getting closer and closer and closer to them as I could and observe the results that were happening as a result of that. So I would have conversations, they would go really well, and I would observe whether I practiced the five factors of well-spoken speech. Or if I had a conversation that went bad, 
I would observe that I hadn't practiced the, all five factors of well-spoken speech. So then I would make efforts in the next conversation to practice closer and closer to the five factors of well-spoken speech. And what I noticed is the closer and closer and closer I got to this ultimate path that the Buddha laid out, the more peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy the mind became in the conversations and relationships that I had with all the people around me just started clearing up more and more and more and more and more. Then once I was noticing the benefits in my own mind, I started teaching it to my son and I started kind of indirectly sharing it with my wife and I was noticing their life was improving as well and that their mind was improving as well. And that's how I knew that these books contained the truth because I was noticing my mind the condition was improving. I noticed my life was improving. I noticed my son and my wife's life was improving. And that's when I ultimately said, okay, now let me teach other people outside the house. So the progression was fix David's mind first. Now I see that's working. As I see things working, share it with my son, share it with my wife. It's working for them our household is getting more peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Now that our household is more and more peaceful, now let me expand it out further and start offering classes. And I started offering them here in the city. And that's when your moderator, Max, eventually came through a few months later. And Amina and some other people that are in this group learned with me in Chiang Mai over the last couple of years. And what I'm doing is essentially sharing what I know worked for me. And that's how I know that these particular teachings that I'm sharing are correct. However, they're not 100% correct because they still use the word suffering. They still use the word happiness. They still use some other words that aren't 100% correct. But I would say they're at least 99, maybe 95% accurate in the way that they're depicting the teachings of the Buddha. And the other way that I knew is because when I read them, it was like I already had that experience. So I had the experience and then I read it and it was like, that's what happened to me. I felt like I was the last person to attain enlightenment. I used to use the words, teach good in the beginning, middle and end. You know, he's explaining to me what it means when you have these past lives and what that looks like. So all these experiences that I was having were being described in the book. As I was learning these teachings and implementing them in my life, the mind became more clear, more peaceful, more calm, more focused, and life has just gotten better and better and better. So applying them in practice and then writing it down and putting it into a book, into podcast, into audiobook, into videos, as you guys are learning these, it's improving your life too. So that's how I know that they're absolutely the truth. Do you think ordaining is still an option for you, David, at some point in the future? And also, what do you see as the main advantages as remaining in lay life? I was had become aware that there were many people in the Buddhist communities that felt that it's not possible for a lay person to attain enlightenment. And that made me very interested to stay as a lay person uh, because I was interested in helping people to see that it is possible to attain enlightenment as a lay person or as a householder. 
that was one. But the main motivator of staying as a householder was I know that if I left at that particular time that I had been accepted into the temple to ordain, I knew that my family didn't have what they needed. It wasn't like the Buddha when he left, his family was left in a royal palace. They had plenty of money, plenty of people to take care of them. My family didn't have that. So I knew that I had to go back and help my family. And thank goodness I did, because even now, today, my wife and son still have a problem here or there between themselves. And that's even after a year and a half of two years of me sharing the teachings with them and helping them. Had I left them and stayed at that temple for six years, they would have been left in discontentedness without money, without anything. So I needed to come back here in order to help them sustain their life for my son to get a good education, my wife to be able to live comfortably and to raise this boy. So I knew I needed to come back for that. I wanted to come back to prove to people that it's possible for a householder to attain enlightenment in the house. And I feel that Gautama Buddha came and he gave very good teachings to the ordained practitioners of how to live an ordained life and attain enlightenment. What I was really interested in is providing householders guidance of how to attain enlightenment in the household life. Nobody had done that before. And I felt like I was in a position where I would potentially be able to do that someday. And it was up to me to figure this out on my own and then be able to offer those teachings to householders so that they could see that it's 100% possible. And by me staying in a household life, I understand having a child and having a wife and having a house and having cars, all the things that the ordained side doesn't necessarily practice on a daily basis. I'm in a community. I'm amongst other people. I'm on Facebook interacting with people in ways that monks don't. So when you guys ask certain questions or all the students that are come in the future until I die, by me staying in a household life, I'm experiencing the same life as you. And I can directly apply these teachings to my life and see how they work. And then I can offer that guidance to you. So at this point, there's no need for me to ever become ordained whatsoever. It would actually inhibit me if I did, because in the ordained discipline, there's a lot of requirements of you that preclude you from doing certain things which would lessen the amount of opportunity that I would have to actually apply these teachings in daily life, which means it would hinder me in being able to offer teachings to a lay community, to a householder community. So by staying as a householder and a teacher at the same time, I'm living the same life as you, and I can relate to all the same experiences that you're having. So therefore, I feel the teachings that I can offer you are much more applicable to your life than if I was to put on a robe and go stay in a temple environment. My experiences wouldn't be the same, so therefore I wouldn't have the same level of wisdom to be able to offer you teachings to help you liberate your mind. I would only have a limited view of life living in a monastery. As you progress in this path, David, you talked a bit there about how that's enabled you to help your wife and son. I'm interested to know what was the reaction of other people around you as your mind developed through this path 
and how, how did you respond to their reactions? So when I first had this big experience where I thought I was enlightened, but I wasn't, I was still immediately aware of a lot of teachings without ever having needed to pick up the books. And I was aware that I had caused a lot of unwholesome karma and I needed to clean that up and I needed to extinguish that. So that time for three years where I was away from my family, my wife had built up a lot of resentment towards me. And, you know, she knew that I was with other women and these kind of things. And that was very hurtful for her. So when I came back to the home, and even though I had this experience where I felt like, whoa, like there was this big shift in the mind, even though I was practicing right speech without ever having read what that was, she was very hostile and aggressive to me. Uh, so she was still very much having craving, anger, and ignorance. So there would be situations while I was still learning these teachings and progressing that she would be angry and hostile and aggressive with me. And I would just be completely calm and quiet. And I would just stand there with my eyes closed and just let her vent all of her hostility and anger. And I knew that this was my gamma because I had caused harm to her during the three years that I was gone and even before that. So I just let her vent all of her anger. And then when she was done, I would just walk away and let her sit with all that anger after she got it all out. And then I would walk away and then I would come back, you know, a day or later or a couple hours later. And I would say, how are you feeling? She would say, you've changed. You know, you, I've noticed that you're different. Like you're not arguing back with me anymore. And I was like, yeah, there's no need to. So she started noticing these shifts. And by me changing, she started shifting as well because she could only yell and argue if there was somebody there to let yell and argue with. I wasn't giving her anybody to argue with. So for at least three or four months, five months, six months, she was still maybe even longer. You know, she would still get into fits of yelling or arguing or venting her anger. And I knew it was based on attachment and from things that happened in the past. So I just let her do it. And then I would just say nothing. And then she could see at the end that it was her that was angry. It wasn't me. And over time, she slowly started realizing that she's the one who's angry and she has to work that out. And I would kind of indirectly provide her teachings without her realizing what I was doing. This is like the skillful way of helping somebody to awaken their mind without them realizing what you're doing. This is one of the reasons why it's nice to spend time around a teacher because we will very skillfully observe something about your mind and we'll be able to teach you without you even realizing that's what we're doing. So I was able to skillfully share teachings with my wife without her sitting down and learning the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and all of these things. You know, she would sometimes scream and yell at me about how much I'm making her angry and, you know, I'm the source of her anger and I did this and I did that. And I would just let her talk and talk and get it all out. And I would say, okay, so I'm the one who's making you angry. She's like, yeah, you're making me. 
but I haven't said anything. How could I be the one making you angry? You're just angry by yourself. And then sometimes she would get angry, like, get out of here. Like, you know so much about the Buddha now. Like, get away from me. So I would just leave. And then two or three days later, she had calmed down and get more and more insight into, yeah, she really was the one who was angry. But it would take like so much effort and so much time. But with patience and dedication, rather than just walking away from her and leaving her in that discontentedness, I know that even though she's causing her own discontentedness, even though it's coming from her own attachments, this was also my gamma coming back to me. And I felt an obligation to clear that up and clean that up and not just leave her on her own. So I selectively found ways to help her get better and better to the extent that about six months ago, when I was doing this at one point, after having done it for about a year or so, she looked at me and she said, you're training my mind, aren't you? And I just said nothing. I just stayed quiet. I just pretend like I didn't even hear what she said. And then she just went on. So you can very skillfully train people, especially if you live with them like this, without them even realizing that you're actually teaching their mind. They can be influenced and improve, but it's a whole nother degree of teaching that you have to be very skillful at to have it be successful. And you have to be very patient in doing that. Yes, I was about to say something to that effect because of course, relationships can also be a huge obstacle. Uh, if we go and reconvene with old friendships and we see family members that we haven't seen for a while, there can be this pull to come back into that old conditioning, the way we used to be around them. And I'm interested to know if there were any other relationships, maybe people from your family or old friends that perhaps you didn't see for years or speak to for years. And then when you came back to them, by this point, your mind has changed in such a way, their mind would have changed too, inevitably in some kind of way. And I'm interested to know if that went differently to how it might have gone a few years ago, or if there are any challenges there and how you handled them. I wasn't interested in going backwards to any past relationships other than a friend of mine that I had in America who's ordained monk. He became a novice when he was eight years old for two years. Then he went back home for two years from the age of 10 to 12. And then at 12 years old, he became a novice. And then at age of 20, he became fully ordained. He got a bachelor's degree in Buddhist studies, two master's degrees and a PhD. He's now 54, 55 years old. He's the president of Wat Thai DC in Washington, DC. So I've known him since 2010. And I went back to him and I told him the teachings of the Buddha lead exactly to where he said they would lead. And he was like, hmm, interesting. So I reconnected with him and he took me to a really well-known monk out in Eastern Thailand. And he had been reading some of my book and about how I was describing what enlightenment is. The way someone knows whether someone is enlightened or not is if you can describe what enlightenment is. So if you can describe what enlightenment is, it means that you must be experiencing it. So therefore, perhaps you've attained it. So he took me to a really well-known monk out in Eastern Thailand that only speaks Thai, that all of those people know he's attained enlightenment. And he sat me down and he asked that monk to describe what enlightenment is. 
and that monk described it in Thai to him and then he looked at me and he said he describes enlightenment the same way you describe enlightenment and he said at this point this is where we would typically consider someone to be enlightened when they can describe what enlightenment is and I just said okay and then later on he asked me he said you know what did you think about visiting this monk and I said oh it was interesting it was was nice I appreciate you taking me to see him and he said is that all he said what did you think about what he said about enlightenment and I said well it's nice to confirm what I already know it was nice to confirm that and he was like oh okay so if you ever feel that you've attained enlightenment it's not like there's this big excitement right because by that point you've already extinguished any excitement based on conditioning so if you feel like you've attained enlightenment and somebody tells you you're enlightened now if you're enlightened that's not going to make you excited (laughs) because that's the condition right somebody telling you hey you're enlightened now well if you get excited about that then you know you're not enlightened because you're getting excited about a certain condition so when they told me okay we consider you to be enlightened I just said okay it didn't phase me and even still to this day I wouldn't tell somebody that I am enlightened because I'm not interested in believing that I'm enlightened because there's so much more wisdom that somebody can actually attain on this path and if somebody ever said they were enlightened that means there's still pride and ego so therefore they're not enlightened so this one particular friend that I went back to he didn't change because he's pretty much enlightened himself but he started observing qualities that he considered to be enlightened in me and that's why he chose to take me to this temple to kind of see if my description of enlightenment matched to a really well-known person who the community feels has attained enlightenment and other than that i haven't gone back to anybody because it doesn't make sense to go backwards in personal and professional relationships i often describe life as a bow tie like you start out with all these friends in childhood and early adulthood and you've got all these relationships and as you get closer and closer and closer to enlightenment those relationships are going to start to peel away because you're going to start getting into more and more wholesome things and you're going to kind of bring your life down to a very limited few people who you probably feel comfortable to be around and the more enlightened your mind becomes that's what's going to probably happen you're going to leave those relationships behind and then you're going to start meeting more and more people who are into wholesome things and that's where your other side of the bow tie is going to start expanding where now you're going to have more and more friends but they're going to be in wholesome things they're not going to be interested in attachment they're not going to be interested in craving anger and ignorance because you're now building out the other side of your bow tie so for me i haven't gone back to anybody other than that one friend and i knew that he was already pretty close to enlightenment because i asked him when i was in america after knowing him for about three or four years i asked him one time are you enlightened and he said why do you ask just curious wondering if you ever attained enlightenment and he said yes i attained it a long time ago and i said okay that's interesting and then we just moved on in the conversation that's what he said to me back in about 2013 so that's why i knew i could go back to him and at that point you know that's when i told him i said the buddhist teachings lead exactly where he said they would 
this stuff. Well, speaking of attachment, David, what were some of the most difficult attachments for you to eliminate? Well, you guys will have to decide if this has actually been eliminated or not, but I feel like the ego is very, very difficult to eliminate. The ego is very, very, very difficult to eliminate. Attachment to sex, that was a very difficult one for me, but it was my personal choice. Nobody asked me to do it. Nobody forced me to do it. It was time for me to do it, and I chose to do it, but that was very difficult. Maybe like always wanting to be right, always proven right. That's part of the ego, right? So really the ego in, in sex and part of that ego is the self, right? That's really hard. Those were the, the two hardest ones for me is was the ego, the self and sex, sensual pleasure. Of course, it's always going to be different for different people. And at some point, we're all going to have to go through eliminating all attachment to self, uh, to sense desires to any anything we crave, the self, eliminate all anger. Were there any that you felt were surprisingly easy that you thought maybe other people might have a challenge with? Um, I think, like you said, you know, because of impermanence, everybody's, what they consider to be challenging or easy is different for each person. There's some people that have already given up sex without even realizing that's part of the path to enlightenment. And they're like, okay, I you know, never really cared for it anyway. And there's some people that have very little ego and, you know, that's a very easy one for them to let go of. So everybody's a little bit different. Easy ones, um, I don't know what we want to call easy. I, I think- is, the, is there such a thing as an easy attachment? Yeah, I think the easy ones are so easy, you just don't even really think about them, you know? And those are kind of the first ones that kind of fluff off, right? And kind of let go of. I think one of the other challenging ones is being around people that feel like you're the one who's making them angry and blaming you for making them angry when you know that it's them themselves making themselves angry and you know that, but you can't explain it to them in that moment. And even if you could, they wouldn't understand it anyway because they're already angry. So when you know the truth, and you know it inside and out and you've trained your mind but yet there's someone standing in front of you in fierce rage telling you that you're making them angry like my wife did on occasions or there were situations early on in facebook groups where people were saying that i was making them angry or whatever and i know for a fact that i'm not making them angry I haven't done anything and it's impossible for me to make somebody angry. It's tough because you have to turn away from that and you have to leave them in their anger. And you know, with all loving kindness, all compassion, you know you have the answer to completely solve that person's discontent mind in their anger, but yet you can't get it through at that particular time. They're not interested in listening there's a wall there, there's too much anger. And even if you could get the message through, they wouldn't understand it. So walking away from people who you know are in discontentedness was a really hard thing for me because I'm interested to help. The more enlightened the mind becomes, you have this overwhelming loving kindness and compassion. But at the same time, walking away can be really hard. But what you have to observe is that sometimes by you walking away, 
it's actually the most loving, kind, and compassionate thing you can do, especially if they're getting angry because of their attachment to you. So if they're getting angered because of their attachment to you and you just sit there and try to talk to them, their attachment is just, you know, it's going to flare up more and more and more. Their anger is going to flare up more and more and more. Sometimes the best way to help that being is to help them eliminate their attachment by just walking away. And they might scream and yell and holler at you. Why are you leaving me? Look at this. I'm so angry and you're just walking away. You're not doing anything to help me. Well, at that point, you can't do anything to help them. They have to help themselves. Only they can help themselves. And sometimes the most loving, kind, and compassionate thing you can do is walk away. And that was a challenging one for me to accept because I wanted to sit right there and I wanted to fix the person. You know, I wanted to get out my tools. I wanted to fix the person and realizing that you can't do that. It's not possible. It has to be the right time to speak. And that's not the right time. So I don't know about easy ones, but there's certainly been some, you know, that it's just like, oh, wow, I'm still attached to that. Okay, let me get rid of that one. And when you've gotten rid of a lot of attachments and you've actively done that, as you get moving further and further, you can kind of cut them off the more your mind gets trained and certain attachments come to mind. Even if you've gotten rid of some of the difficult ones, some of the little pesky ones might still be around, but you've trained your mind so well when you realize, whoa, I'm attached to that. You can kind of cut it off pretty readily because you've trained your mind so well and you've worked through some of the major ones that you just know how to cut it off really easily. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that point about the desire to help and compassion because I think that's another major misunderstanding within Buddha's teachings and even in Western Buddhism. And it's a difficult one for many people to, to give up. It's understanding there's a, there's a fine line between compassion and a longing for to help someone, but actually they are two very different things. And And sometimes not giving in to that craving to help when you can't help and it's not the right time is actually the most compassionate thing one can do. And so you've got, I think you've covered here a couple of the major misconceptions that people have had recently about Buddha's teachings. You mentioned earlier about uh, attachment and it's not about finding happiness and eliminating suffering at all. It's about eliminating the discontent mind, including the longing for pleasant feelings. So, so yeah, I think that's a really key point for a lot of people to hear. I'd like to switch gears slightly and ask about your meditation practice. How has your meditation practice evolved? And what were some of the biggest challenges you've encountered in meditation? So when I first started meditating in America, it was based on the Thai massage training and teaching the Thai massage practitioners to meditate. But I really didn't know how to meditate at that time because no one had ever taught me how to meditate and uh, I was just doing what I kind of thought was right like just all right everybody close your eyes and I'm going to chant and just meditate like I didn't even really tell people what to do we just kind of sat around and did something and everybody just kind of did whatever they thought they were going to do so I thought I was meditating for three years five years but 
never during that time would I've told you that I was on a path to enlightenment. I was just really doing it because I was the boss, I was the teacher, I was supposed to know how to meditate because all these other students who were coming to me were into yoga, they were into massage, they were into meditation and spirituality. They actually probably knew more about it than I did, but I knew more about Thai massage and Thai culture and Thai practices than what they did. So they were coming to me. So for that first three to five years, I was just sitting around and I couldn't even breathe in my nose because I had massive sinus problems from having my nose broken two times in three different surgeries that I couldn't even breathe through my nose. So I was actually holding meditation classes in America without even really knowing how to meditate. And my wife would have classes, but she knew what she was doing and other people knew more of what they were doing. So for those first three to five years, it was just me sitting there with my eyes closed, just having constant thoughts and just bombardment of thoughts, almost like hitting a brick wall and not knowing anything what to do whatsoever. And when I left America in 2015 and came to Thailand, I dove into a whole nother world, the dark side of Thailand, and I wasn't meditating at all. I wasn't even thinking about the Buddhist teachings really at that particular time much. And it wasn't until this experience in August of 2018 when that energy hit me, I realized after about four to six weeks that, wow, I, I should get a meditation practice going and, and start meditating. So one of the books that I have is all about what the Buddha taught about meditation. And I started reading it and reading it and reading it and reading all the other books. And I was just doing whatever I thought was right. And then eventually I ran across one of his teachings where he was talking about cutting thoughts. And I was like, wow, that sounds like what I wanna do is cut the thoughts. So in meditation that night, I started working on cutting the thoughts. That wasn't even in his book about meditation. That was in a completely different book. So I was like, that sounds like what I want to do. So I started working on this cutting the thoughts and letting the thoughts go and training the thoughts to be let go by just focusing on the breath. And I noticed the more that I was doing that, the mind became more and more stable. And I was able to experience these long periods in meditation where there was nothing. There was just no thoughts arising and there was no tendency for the mind to go to the past or go to the future. So I was like, wow, this is the way to do it because every time I keep doing it this way, the mind keeps getting better and better. So I kept doing it and doing it and doing it. The mind kept getting better and better. And that's when I started teaching students, started helping them. And then that's when Thai people confirmed for me that, yeah, that's what they do too. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I saw it in the Buddhist teachings. It works for me. It's working for the students. That's what Thai people learn. So that's the truth. It's working for sure. So when I was in America, I focused a lot of time on loving kindness meditation. And that's what I did pretty much all the time is loving kindness meditation. So that by the time I had gotten to Thailand, I had eradicated pretty much all the, the hatred pretty much. But it wasn't until this period of August 2008 until now that I really started implementing a dedicated meditation practice. And I realized that it was that meditation of loving kindness 
that I was doing in America that I share with you guys that eradicated the vast majority of the hatred, anger, and ill will and resentment. Because I used to hold a lot of resentment from my mom and, and that helped me to eliminate that and my stepdad and my actual dad too. I held a lot of resentment for them. So it allowed me to let go of that through practicing loving kindness meditation because in my loving kindness meditation for the first six months or so, the thoughts of my mom in my childhood used to come up constantly. And I used to have to just keep training the mind to, to let that go and focus on the loving kindness meditation. So now I do all breathing mindfulness meditation. I don't have any even sliver of irritation, annoyance, frustration, hatred, anger, ill will, any of that stuff. So I only ever do loving kindness meditation in classes when I'm teaching students. But I know that that's the one that leads to eradication of hatred, anger, ill will. So that's why I teach it. But now I will meditate in the morning as soon as I wake up and I will meditate in the evening as well. Those are like my two anchor points. And then in the middle of the day, I will oftentimes be teaching classes at different times. So I'll meditate with students during the middle of the day. But no matter what, I'm always meditating by myself. That's my real practice. When I'm meditating in classes, I will meditate and I'm getting some benefit, but it's not the same as when I do it by myself. That's the real practice for me by myself. And what I was noticing as I was making my way through this discontent mind is I didn't want my mind to get attached to anything at all. So that's when I got rid of the alarm. I didn't time myself. I got rid of pillows. Like I started moving around and in the room and using different setups. I started moving to different places in my house so I wouldn't get attached to just meditating in my room. I started meditating outside at temples and going to different temples. I went to different parks and meditated in different parks. Sometimes if I was waiting for somebody, I would just sit down somewhere in the pouring rain with the rain hitting the tin roof and hearing this loud bombardment of rain on the tin roof and I would just try to meditate there. And I didn't know if I was going to be successful in it or not, but it would just I would just try to test the mind. It wasn't about I've got to get the most benefit from every single meditation session. It was about putting the mind in different environments, different situations to test how well could I maintain concentration and focus on the breath given these new variables in this new situation. I started treating it almost like a home improvement project that I had to move the mind around in different situations. And there were some situations where I had too much energy and I couldn't sit and meditate. So I would do walking meditation. And then there were times where on Friday or Saturday night, which in the past would be me going out and having fun out on the town, I decided to walk around the city and do walking meditation, which turned into 45 minutes or one hour meditation sessions with all these tourists and partying and bars and liquor and the smell of liquor and smoke and people bumping into me. And I would just walk so slow through the streets of Chiang Mai and I would be aware of the six doorways to discontentedness. The Buddha would teach about the six doorways. And as I was walking 
and I would hear a sound of music and I would observe my mind go over there and I'm like, ah, sound, that's a doorway. And then I'd be walking and I would smell cigarettes and I'm like, ah, doorway, that could cause somebody's mind to be discontent. Or mm, I would smell the whiskey or somebody would bump into me and I'm like, ah, physical contact with the body, that's one of the doorways. Or I'd be walking and be really deep in meditation and a raindrop, because it rained earlier in the day, would come off of the edge of a roof and just hit me square in the middle of my head. And I would just continue to look down at the ground and just continue to do meditation instead of like, oh, what was that? I would just keep my mind so utterly focused on the meditation that none of the stimulus around the town would disturb the discontent mind and I would just focus it and focus it and focus it building concentration no matter what happened around me and even sometimes as I was focused you know I was wearing white clothes with a shaved head walking down the street but these tourists didn't know what I was doing a lot of them and I would be walking so slow and sometimes I would even hear the tourists gossiping about me like what's that guy doing he looks so crazy like What's he doing out here at nine o'clock at night in the dark, walking down the street so slow for? Is he crazy? Like, what's he doing? Right. And I would like hear these things. And then if I allowed that to invade the mind, people talking negatively about you, I would just cut that off. Right. And all of this training that I put my mind through then became applicable in daily life. So if somebody says something negative about me in a Facebook group or somebody says something negative to me about it doesn't bother the mind because I know that's them and they're gossiping and they're making certain judgments about me and they don't even know me, right? Like here's tourists just see me walking down the street. They have no idea who I am, but they're gossiping about me and talking negatively about me. They're no different than the person who's in the Facebook group who has never met me, doesn't know me, and they might decide to attack me for any number of reasons. So I started applying this meditation practice of training the mind in all these different situations and just slowing the mind down to utter stillness and then applying that in daily life because I knew that meditation alone isn't going to get to enlightenment, but it's the application of what you're putting the mind through that is going to be beneficial. It's like a boxer who's training in the gym, they're training for the actual fight. So the training in meditation is the training, but then what you're training for is you're training for daily life, to maintain your contentedness in daily life. And I recognize that. So I was trying to eliminate all the attachments in meditation because I wasn't interested in any attachments outside of meditation. So that's when, you know, I, I never have meditated to guided meditations like YouTube meditations or apps on a phone. I don't time myself. I don't use mala beads. I don't use music. It's just body, mind, and breath. Those are the only three things you need to meditate as you build up your practice. Nice. Okay. So you have a question from Manal on Facebook. She says, Teacher David, do you ever miss anyone or anything? I don't miss anything or anyone. Not at all. There's nothing that I miss. There's times when I think back to my life in the past and think about how sick 
my mind really was, you know, indulging in pleasurable activities and chasing after money or, you know, how the ego, you know, spent so much money on so many different things and chasing after the money and the stress and the burden that I was carrying to try to maintain this life and realizing how all that craving that I had led to such a very difficult life. But now there's nothing that I miss whatsoever. I've got everything I need. I've got food, I've got water, I've got clothes, I've got shelter, I've got medical care. That's all I need. And uh, someday all of that stuff will go away and I'll die and completely fine with that. <laughs> yeah, no fear, nothing to miss, no so worries. So how do you view your role now, David? And what are your plans going forward? So now what I would like to do is share these teachings with as many people as are interested to learn. So now the practice has evolved past just I'm doing this for David's discontent mind to let me help my son and my wife to let me help anybody who's interested in learning. So as... I started unraveling the mind. That's where the book came in. That's where the videos started happening. That's when the group learning program, teaching online classes, doing the podcast, that's the audio book, that's teaching live classes and retreats, traveling around the world. What I would like to do is share these teachings with everyone and anyone around the world that's interested to learn these. I suspect that at some point in the future, I'm going to have to start traveling and teaching because I've already been doing that a little bit inside Thailand. And I would like to get to a point where these teachings bubble up into the world and we really shine a light on Gautama Buddha's teachings that we can even get into things like mass media, like the Oprah Winfrey show. CNN, MSNBC, BBC, you know, all these different mass media outlets to help them understand that this discontentedness of sadness, frustration, anger, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, loneliness, boredom, jealousy, resentment, the human mind doesn't have to live a life with all these emotions. They can be completely eradicated to attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. But in order to kind of restore these teachings and help the world see the true teachings of the Buddha, we have to start with ourselves and then slowly move out and progress from there. So I'm building out all of these learning resources, the book, the podcast, the online classes, the audio book, the various things, the different in-person classes. And then as all of these things are finished, then I will start moving my way out into the world more and more, making it more known that these teachings are available and then kind of drawing people in to be able to have the guidance that they need if they choose to step forward to learn. Not about pushing the teachings on people, but just kind of letting them know that you don't have to live with a discontent mind. You don't have to live with sadness. You don't have to live with anger. You can eradicate it. You can eradicate frustration and irritation, annoyance. And my goal is to develop 
as large of a community as possible before I die of people who are enlightened and more and more and more and more people that can attain this mental state of enlightenment. My son at the age of eight is already understanding the teachings a lot. Once I die, he will start teaching in my place and I will slowly bring him up as he ages. He's already said that he would like to teach. He's said this on his own. And if he changes his mind at some point, then he changes his mind and he goes another direction. But I suspect that he will probably continue forward in teaching and then hand it down from him to his son and so forth and so on for an entire thousand years where there's a thousand years of teachers that can be teaching these teachings and make sure that they really permeate into humanity and that we have more and more enlightened people on all continents all around the world and that you guys are able to then also teach and share the teachings throughout the world and as more and more people are interested to learn that people can grow up with these teachings over the next thousand years and here in Thailand in Chiang Mai I plan to maintain it as kind of a home base where we will have retreats and learning events where people can travel here get all the teachings learn as much as they want live here if they like for a couple of months or a couple of years make multiple trips in and out and take the teachings back home for them and essentially what I'm doing is laying down the teachings with as many people as would like to learn become as enlightened as possible and then leave as many teachers around after I die my son being one of those and his son and so forth and so on and then Thailand would be kind of like a home base where people would be able to always come and get the teachings and continue to spread these teachings throughout the entire world as people choose to bring them into their life. I feel that the situation is ripe right now for these teachings to be communicated to the wider audience in this way because we're aware there's a problem. We haven't always necessarily been aware that there's a problem on a mass scale. I think people are becoming aware of the cause of the problem, the discontent mind, the, the craving, the anger, the unknowing of true reality. And as evidenced here by the fact that there's people on this call and there's more and more people taking interest in meditation, people are becoming aware that liberation is possible and of the means of attaining that liberation piece by piece and we, we maybe get taste of this when we meditate so yeah the, your, your ideas there really resonate with me and I can see it unfolding in a very positive way yeah I would change one thing that you say there you said I think people are realizing discontentedness and the cause of it I don't think the world does understand the cause of their discontent mind I think the vast majority of people in the world still think that other people make them angry and it's other people who are the problem. I think where we're getting to is people are tired of the anger. They're tired of the hostility. They're tired of all the problems that we've experienced in the world. And I think people are ripe for an answer, but people don't even know that there is an answer that exists right now. And that's why what I'm sharing is once we get all these teachings laid out, in audiobook, written book, all these different methods that I'm setting up, that will be the time to then 
step out into the world and help people experience and know that all of this hostility, anger, aggression, guilt and shame and fears and everything that they've been living with their whole life, there's answers to this and you don't have to live with this. And by the way, here's the answers. They're sitting right there on a podcast server. They're sitting right there in a free book. They're sitting right there in a free audio book. Everything's free. Just take it, go learn it first, and then share it with whomever you want to share it with. And that's where eventually getting up into mass media will be very, very helpful that people can realize that all this discontentedness, they are causing it, which means they can eliminate it right now because everyone thinks that somebody else is causing it. We have a lot of people in the world that's going around and trying to tell everyone else what to do. They're trying to fix everyone else, thinking that if they just fix everyone else, that will solve all the problems, but it's not going to solve the problem. They have to fix themselves, but they don't know what that solution is. And the Buddhist teachings are essentially invisible at this time. 2,500 years after his death, the teachings have now become invisible. People aren't able to get in touch with them. And even if they are able to get in touch with them in the Buddhist communities, they don't necessarily understand them because they're using this word suffering. They're using this word happiness. They're using some language that doesn't exactly explain what the Buddha truly taught in my view, in my opinion. So by laying these teachings down in the way that I am, preserving them in a way that they're freely accessible to anyone in the world who would like to access them, now it's just a matter of making people aware that they are causing their own discontent mind and they can solve it. And by the way, here it is, if you're interested. So the Buddha points the way. Everyone else needs to strive to be able to attain that mental state. Yes, yes, it all makes sense. And I, I feel that we're getting to the point where the results of our decisions based on the craving, the anger, and the, the ignorance are becoming just undeniable now to the point where we physically won't be able to kick the can down the road anymore. We're going to have yep. you know, dangerous levels of inequality potentially, not to mention the climate. I mean, there's a whole list, but I think that's the key here is we've had the fun and the hangover is kind of at the door. And the, the more we push that hangover away, the, the worse it's going to be when it actually finally takes hold. And at that point, you know, when you've got a hangover, there's no denying it. You know that it hurts. And at that point, you you go, hmm, what was the cause of that? So, yeah, I hear what you're saying there. And maybe it's right time that we come to understand the cause. I like the hangover analogy. That's a very good Buddhist teaching, man. <laughs> <laughs> very good. <laughs> it's a helpful one I find it useful yeah yeah yeah. we have a question from Shital she asks how do you handle it when things don't go as planned say someone doesn't show up at a planned meeting with you and maybe you have to wait is it that anger just doesn't happen to you or do you know how to handle your mind in this situation also how do you handle criticism or opposition If I was in a situation where I was planning to go meet somebody and they didn't show up, anger wouldn't even arise at this point in my life. I wouldn't feel any frustration, any anger. 
I would just know that some impermanence that happened somewhere and it doesn't make sense to get angry about it. So I don't have any anger that would even arise in that situation. In previous times in my life, the ego would be like, you know, who are they to leave me here? And I came all the way out here and don't they know who I am? I'm a big bad businessman and my time's valuable and blah, 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 right? Like that's what would be going through my head in prior times. But now somebody doesn't show up to a meeting. Okay, no big deal. There must have been something impermanent that happened. And rather than assume negative, I'm just going to assume the positive that there's been some impermanence that's happened. They're a loving, caring, kind, compassionate person. I'm sure this will get figured out at some point. And I just assume the positive. I always assume the positive. If somebody criticizes me, I listen to what they have to say because I think if anybody's going to take the time, even if they're hostile and angry, I'm going to listen to what they have to say. And then I will take that offline and evaluate whether I feel that those things are true and real or not. Or perhaps are they just viewing me through their own craving, anger, and ignorance? Because oftentimes what happens is people will project their ego or they will project their shortcomings onto you and then they will read it as coming from you when in reality it's them. So I've had people tell me, oh, David, you think you're so great setting up that Buddhism group and sharing those classes and you're just teaching those classes because of your ego. I listen to it. But then when I evaluate it, I'm like, okay, I left a million dollars for my company on the table. I walked away from a business that was making a million dollars a year. I used to have all of these things. I shut all that down. And now I live a life where I eat very basic food, a dollar or two dollars a meal. When at other points in my life, I could afford a $300 meal. I would go in and out of restaurants oftentimes just for my own meal, spending $300. So this person, they don't know the past. They don't know all the things that I've done in the past to end up where I am now teaching. They're just seeing somebody teach. And in their mind, they have ego. And they think just because somebody's sharing the teachings, they must have ego too. So I'll listen to the criticism. I won't reply back to them. I won't say you're wrong. I won't defend myself because there is no self. If somebody's judging me and they're saying I have ego, then that's their judgment. I'll still listen to it and, and see if there's any ego in there, never assuming that it's gone. But there's nothing for me to defend because if they're judging me, there's no reason for me to try to defend that because there's no self there to actually defend. And if they've already made their judgment of me and saying that I'm egotistical just for offering teachings and sharing teachings on a donation basis only, then that's their judgment. And there's nothing that I'm going to say that's going to sway their judgment. And there's no reason for me to try to defend myself in that situation because, again, there's no self. So if somebody criticizes me, then they're doing that without actually knowing me because Anybody who truly knows me and understands me, they understand. They, they know my past. They, 
know about what I'm doing now. They see the generosity. They see the love and the kindness and the compassion. They understand the amount of time and effort it takes to truly do the things that I'm doing. There's only usually one type of person that will criticize you. And it's the person who's doing less than you, right? If you're out there doing all kinds of really helpful things in the world, the only person who's going to criticize you is the people who are doing less than you because they want to pull you down. Because anybody who's doing more than you, they know how hard it is just to do what you're actually doing. So that person who's doing more than you, they're just going to be supportive and encouraging and say, hey, man, go for it. You're knocking it out of the park. Like, yeah, let me know how I can help you. But someone who's doing less than you, they're just going to criticize you and tell you how bad you are. Because inside, they really feel shameful and guilty that they're not able to do what you're doing. And they're going to try to pull you down. So if you listen to that and you allow that criticism, that negative criticism to pull you down, then you're just inhibiting your forward progression. So I listen to people when they criticize me, but there's never times where that negative criticism has been like, you know what? They're right. I really do have ego. I should have stayed in that million dollar a year job and kept all those cars and motorcycles and eating out at fancy restaurants. You know, they're, they're actually kind of right. I should go back to that. You know, if you know the truth and, you know, and you've been through this journey with your mind and you've stripped away all of this stuff, when somebody says something about you, then you know that that's just their judgment and their criticism. But I still listen to it. I, but I never try to defend myself. I just, hmm, okay, listen to it and, and move on. And oftentimes the way you know that this is problematic is if someone criticizes you and you say nothing, and you just walk away, or in a Facebook conversation, if you just stop posting, and somebody keeps posting and keeps posting and keeps posting, you see their craving that they're just trying to knock you down. And sometimes I've had people follow me in and out of different Facebook groups, and every little thing that I post, they'll just try to knock it down and knock it down and knock it down. And I know that's impermanent, that eventually they're gonna extinguish that. So if I just don't respond at all and just keep on going about doing the good things that I know I'm doing, eventually their anger will get extinguished and they'll just stop commenting to me because I'm not replying back. Whereas if I will be angered and aggressive or try to defend myself, that's just giving them steam. That's what those people want. And you're gonna be involved in an endless battle of them trying to prove to you you're a bad person and you trying to prove to them that you're a good person. Well, why? Why even try to prove that? If they don't see the goodness in you, it's because they don't have goodness in themselves. So if people are looking at you as being a bad person and that's all they keep telling you is you're a bad person, that's because they're seeing themselves in you. An enlightened person or someone who has good qualities, they're gonna go around and they're gonna see all the good qualities in other people. You always see in other people what you have yourself. So if people are trying to knock you down and criticize you, that's because they're trying to bring you down. But you, if you're on the path to the truth, you just keep doing what you know is the truth and good, wholesome things and surround yourself with people that are supportive and encouraging, but also people that are honest with you. 
It's because, uh, you know, you don't want to insulate yourself with people that are just telling you what you want to hear. So that's why I still always listen to people that say negative things or criticism about me. I listen to it and I look and then what I come to nowadays is I come to, well, that's just them for sure. Because how could somebody spend 80 hours a week doing the things that I do without any expectations whatsoever and living off a very meager amount of money and do that out of ego, right? Like people don't do that. People don't shut down million dollar companies, live off meager donations and spend 80 plus hours a week to offer something out of ego. Eventually the ego would be eliminated when you start getting into the trenches you know if someone does that out of ego eventually things are going to get shut off whereas if you know you're doing the right thing even living off of just meager donations and just doing it out of the kindness of your heart that's why i've been at this now for almost two years and all that negative criticism i haven't allowed it to affect me because i know that i'm doing it for the right reasons and the right intentions which is to help people and other people can look from the outside and they can judge but that's their judgment i'm not here to make them happy they have to find their own contentedness they have to find their own peaceful mind i'm here to share teachings with people that are interested to learn the truth and discover this enlightened mind through these teachings and if someone else wants to judge and criticize then that's on them and they don't join and that's fine and they're going to continue to be discontent they're going to continue to be judgmental they're going to continue to have hostility but for me my mind's going to be peaceful calm serene and content with joy and the students who are learning and evolving their mind they're going to be peaceful calm serene and content with joy too as they progress further and further and there's always going to be people on the outside that are saying, you're wrong, you're this, you're bad, you're this, you're just doing this and you're doing that. They did the same thing to the Buddha. They did the same thing to Jesus, right? I'm not saying I'm the Buddha, I'm Jesus, but if there's still people in the world that hate the Buddha, and there's still people in the world that hate Jesus Christ and criticize the Buddha and criticize Jesus Christ, why do I think I would be any different, right? There's always gonna be people that criticize it's just a matter of how much do you allow it to affect your mind. So I, I suggest for you to listen to it, but don't beat yourself up and feel guilty about it if someone's criticizing you. Look for support and encouragement. Those people are going to help you to build your life. Okay, so we've had a couple of questions coming on Facebook and we still have a very attentive audience. So I suggest we go to this question from Manal. She asks, Aside from Gosma Buddha, who has been your biggest inspiration so far in your life? The Buddha and Jesus Christ in God. Those are the three. With that to the side, I would say, even though we've had our challenges, my wife is a very big inspiration in my life. She, for many, many years, through all the problems and the things that I was doing wrong, she was always there for me and never turned her back on me. It takes a very patient woman to live through the things that she lived through with me. Very big respect and admiration from my wife. I have a lot of respect for 
this friend that I tell you, his name is, uh, he goes by Dr. Handy. His name is, I call him Praajan Tanat. He's been ordained pretty much his whole life. And he's been working very, very hard for many, many, many years to help as many people as possible to progress on this path. But he just hasn't had what he's needed to really maybe have as much influence as I think he could. But I have a lot of respect for people like him that are teaching in the world and trying to help as many people attain enlightenment as possible. And there's others besides him around the world who are teaching and sharing teachings to try to help awaken and help as many people attain enlightenment as possible. I have a lot of respect for the Beaconese who are revitalizing the Bikini path in Thailand. The first reordained female ordained uh, practitioner is still alive. She ordained like 20 years ago. And when she started off, and even now, there's probably still quite a few people that are against bringing back female ordained path. And they really stuck to what they knew is right because the Buddha ordains females and they knew it was the right thing to do. And they just continued and did what they knew was right. And now I think there's something around 300 Bikinese in the world, at least here in Thailand. Uh, there's other Bikini in other parts of Buddhism, but in terms of the Thai ordained community, I think there's about 300 female ordained so I have a lot of respect for them. Uh, I have a lot of respect for the royalty in Thailand, the royal family. I think that they have done a phenomenal job of ensuring that the Buddhist teachings are a real cornerstone, front and center in the Thai community and ensuring that the Thai people have access to these teachings all throughout all the various villages and communities throughout Thailand. They've done a really, really good job of making sure that the Buddhist teachings are a real core value in Thai society. So I have a lot of respect for the royal family and particularly the king number nine, Rama number nine, his life, he was the longest monarch that is in modern history. I think he was around for about 66 years he was the king he died in 2016 but from the age of 26 to 94 he was the king so he had a lot of time to really help the people and i think his life and dedication of service to the community is to be admired he has done so many things for the thai people and this is one of the reasons why the Thai people really admire him a lot. And I think for a public figure that is elevated as high as a king to instead use that position to turn it around and actually help the people, I think is an admiration that every person in power and leadership and politics should look as an example of how you can use a position of power, the king of Thailand, but use it for the benefit of people rather than using it for your own benefit. I think that's highly admirable. So these are some of the people that I really admire in the world.
And you mentioned Jesus Christ and God there, David. And I know that in your book, you mentioned the Lord's Prayer and that when you do meditation on your own, you recite the Lord's Prayer before each meditation. What's your reason for reciting the Lord's Prayer? I think it's important to for people who don't know what the Lord's Prayer is to say what the Lord's Prayer is and then they'll understand why I, I, I say it. So the Lord's Prayer is, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then it continues from there. So essentially creating heaven on earth. For me, I've seen a mountain of evidence personally of God's existence. And I can teach people to liberate the mind and attain enlightenment with an understanding of God or without it. You know, as we talked back in chapter 19, if you have no understanding of God whatsoever and you just say, I'm not even interested in exploring the whole God question, I can teach you how to liberate the mind. If you are interested in maintaining a relationship with God, I can teach you how to liberate the mind with that. For me, I have a mountain of evidence that God exists, and that's just for me. And I don't need to convince other people of that. I know the truth in that, but what you feel, I can work with you either way. The teachings are available to all people. But I know that these teachings that I share are the teachings that are going to create heaven on earth. That when an entire human population has eliminated craving, anger, and ignorance, the self and the ego, this is heaven on earth. God himself or herself or itself, however you look at that, or you may look at that, or Jesus Christ returning, there's no snap of a finger and instantly the world gets created as heaven on earth. It's each individual person making wise choices that we create heaven on earth ourselves. It's not some third party doing it for us. We have to do it ourselves. And I know that these are the teachings that do that and I know that God exists. So when I pray and I just say that simple prayer, I'm just acknowledging to God that I'm working here on behalf of all of humanity to help all of humanity to create heaven on earth. And it's my affirmation twice a day to myself and a commitment to all of humanity that I'm going to continue to share these teachings for the rest of my life to help as many people understand what it takes to eradicate craving, anger, ignorance, the self, and the ego, so that as a collective humanity, we can all bring peace to this earth. Because it's been way too long that hostility, anger, hatred, and ill will has existed on this planet. And now we're finally at a point in human evolution and technology that we can now share these teachings to anybody who's interested to learn them and we can all truly create heaven on earth. You don't need to say that prayer. That's why I say in the book, this is what I do. But by all means, you shouldn't take it as something you need to do. But the reason why I do it is a commitment to myself, to all of humanity, and ultimately to God that I'm going to continue to work in this direction for the rest of my life to ensure that these teachings get brought into the world in a way that everybody 
who's interested to do so can liberate the mind and we can create heaven on earth. That's wonderful. Thank you, David. Now we have a question from Deborah. She says, David, what advice would you give your younger self? <laughs> Learn the Buddhist teachings with a teacher as soon as possible. <laughs> you got to have a teacher. You can't learn and attain enlightenment without a teacher. And the sooner you start learning, age five, age six, age seven, and if it didn't happen early in life with you, Deborah, age 57, there's no time that's too late to start learning. And, you know, learn the Buddhist teachings, apply them in life, see the truth, gain wisdom and seek guidance from teachers as you need help. That's the only way to liberate the mind and create this better and better life for yourself. It's the only way. Okay, I think we'll make this the last one. So we had a question from Randall earlier, said, do you have any plans to do any retreats or in-person talks in Chiang Mai in the future? And I would just add, for anyone who's listening who isn't yet engaged with you, David, and us as a community, what's the best way for someone to engage with us? So the answer is yes, I would like to do in-person retreats. I hosted a retreat back in February at a temple here in Chiang Mai. And then right after that is when COVID came you know, pretty strong. So once Thailand gets reopened, I would like to have a retreat. I had some on the schedule for this year, but then COVID happened, so we couldn't do them. That schedule is still online, but we're past all the dates that I had scheduled, except for one. There's one in December that is a 10-day retreat, and I had scheduled it, and I've left it on the schedule thinking that perhaps Thailand might be reopened by that time. I noticed that Thailand is slowly reopening now. I noticed yesterday at the barbershop, they've put all the chairs back to the normal way and they're still doing contact tracing and temperature checks, but they've gone away from having the chairs really far spaced out and all that kind of stuff. So I have a feeling by this next November, December, January, which is the Thai high tourist season that they may be back to opening the borders. But I've also heard rumors that they might be doing like bubble travel where like Thailand may reopen to places like Vietnam and South Korea and places like this. But if Thailand opens its borders, we will have a retreat in December for sure. If they're not open by then, at whatever point Thailand does reopen, I will start teaching retreats in person at that point. So as soon as COVID gets lifted, those restrictions, I will start teaching classes in Chiang Mai and retreats in Chiang Mai. And if people invite me to their community and are able to support and sponsor me to come, then I will travel to wherever the community is that maybe invites me to come and they can put together a group of people and I will teach for five days or 10 days or however many days people would like me to teach in your community. So yes, I definitely would like to do in-person training because I noticed that that has a really good effect because with in-person training, you can just engage so much more than we can over internet. But I've been really impressed by how much we've actually been able to accomplish by this internet training. I think it's been working out really well. 
And what was the second part of that question, Max? I thought it just might be a good opportunity to uh, let people know how they can engage with us further. Oh, okay. I think the best way is by joining the Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha group, because that's where I do a lot of the online teaching. And then from there, you have access to the free book. You have access to the videos on the YouTube channel. You have access to the podcast. You have access to the audiobook that's going to be out in a couple of weeks. You have access to all these things. You can ask questions and I can reply to you there. That's also where I share the link where you can schedule a personal discussion with me. If you want to do like a private one-on-one audio video chat, you can schedule on my schedule. And a lot of students have been doing that over the recent weeks because then I can get to know you really well. You can get to know me really well. And then you can make contact with me and get really direct guidance in your practice which Max kind of has been doing a lot on an informal basis. And Max has really made a lot of progress in the year that we've known each other. And Amina has done that and Carl and uh, Carol and lots of people. And there's appointments that are scheduled. So I feel like the Daily Wisdom Walking the Path with the Buddha Facebook group is the best place. But of course, we also have a website which kind of pulls everything together as well. And that's buddhadailywisdom.com. So if you go to buddhadailywisdom.com, that's where I have kind of a launch pad for all the different things that I do, including the retreats that Randall asked about. So if you are interested in seeing what's going on retreat-wise, it's on the website, buddhadailywisdom.com. Well, thank you very much, David. We've got a lot of thank yous in both platforms here. And I know for me, that's been very encouraging and reassuring because I think one of the biggest takeaways here from your story is clearly that there were many many challenges and we, we've all had challenges clearly but you, know, you really drove home the point that the challenges were part of the path all right they weren't deviations from it at all they were things that you had to face and overcame and ultimately led you here now we just see you here now practicing really well and then maybe we go away into our own lives and think oh why is my mind discontent am i ever going to be able to get rid of this well i think you've shown us today that they are also part of the journey they're lessons to be acquired they're things to be overcome and you know there's there's clearly um potential for all of us so i uh, would like to thank you david and yeah it's been, been really useful so I'll hand back over to you. Okay. Yeah, so picking back up on that, Max, is, you know, in terms of the Buddhist teachings, one of the reasons why I know they're 100% truth is because I lived a life long enough of not following those teachings. So if you look at the five precepts, I've done all of those things multiple countless times, whether it's killing, whether it's stealing, whether it's sexual misconduct, lying, or taking substances that cause heedlessness. And I know where all those things lead to in the, the problems and the heartache and the discontentedness leads to. And that's why as I started practicing those things and saw the life and my mind improve, that's how I know that they're in fact the truth. Same thing with the Eightfold Path, which refines the five precepts even further, getting into right view, right intention, right speech, right action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, concentration. I know that 
I lived with a discontent mind for so long. You know what it feels like to be angry and frustrated and irritated, annoyed, guilt and shame and boredom and loneliness, jealousy and resentment. You know all of these discontent feelings. So when you start learning the truth and you start practicing the truth, which includes meditation, when you start practicing this and you see your mind improve and you see your life improve, that's how you know it's the truth. So that's why you can't ever be misled by any of the teachings that somebody shares with you, is if you're always looking for the truth and you don't believe anything, and this is what I'll share on Sunday as we officially start the group learning program, is don't ever believe anything I say, but put it into practice and see that the teachings will actually improve the condition of your mind and improve the condition of your life. And because these teachings have improved the condition of my mind and the condition of my life, that's why I can say to students, don't believe anything I say, because what I am sharing with you in terms of teachings is from the experience of knowing that it improved the condition of my mind and the condition of my life. So therefore I know that there's no difference between my mind and your mind. We're all human beings. So as long as you have the dedication and commitment and capacity to actually learn and understand and apply these teachings and practice, I know with 100% confidence that if you take that time, effort, and dedication to learn and apply these teachings, you will move along this path to enlightenment as well. And you will experience some of the same things that I did as well in your own unique way but you will experience this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy the closer and closer you get to practicing. The problems that I encountered in my life are all because I didn't know these teachings. All the problems, all the sadness, all the despair, all the heartache, all the misery, all the darkness from my childhood to early adulthood and and on, The reason why my life was so difficult is because I didn't know these teachings. It wasn't until I learned these teachings and implemented them that I could actually improve the condition of my mind. And then in doing that, in building that wisdom and experience, now I'm able to help other people. Being able to share these teachings with my son, getting him to the point where he never needs to cry ever again in his life. That's one of the best gifts you can ever give to your child. Being able to cause all that heartache to my wife over the years and now be able to give back to her through her patience and her dedication to me as her husband, now being able to live life alongside of her and be able to share this with her and help her improve the condition of her mind is one of the best gifts I could ever give So all of that misery and heartache that I experienced, it was only valuable and beneficial if I turn it into something good. So having experienced all the heartache, all the darkness from not practicing these teachings and being utterly unaware of these teachings to now where I know them inside and out and have committed them to memory and can recall them and apply them in practice very easily as first nature. Now I'm able to help other people because I've actually done it myself. A lot of times what we see in the world is we see people go out and try to teach something 
that they themselves are not doing. And one of the quotes of the Buddha that I love so, 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 so much, and I live my life by this, is one who sees me sees the teachings. And one who sees the teachings sees me. And I live my life by this every day, is that I feel that if I'm going to teach these teachings and share these teachings, that one who sees me should see the teachings, right? I should be the very deep, 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 deepest practitioner. If I'm going to stand up and share these teachings with others, I better be the very best practitioner that exists if I'm going to share these teachings with the entire world. And that's the one quote from the Buddha that I feel has always stuck in my mind since I've been on this last two years of really dedicating myself to it. Because when I was teaching in America, Thai massage and sharing a little bit of the teachings that I knew, I wasn't the deepest practitioner of these teachings. I didn't really know what I was doing. I was sharing meditation. I was sharing some of these teachings without understanding what I was doing whatsoever. People around me, based on what I was sharing, they were getting lots of benefit. And that's why people kept coming to learn with me. But I really didn't know what I was doing because I hadn't really done it myself yet. And that's why those three years of being in Thailand on my own, without a business, without other things going on and just focusing on myself, that allowed me to understand the teachings deeply, practice them myself deeply, so that now in a teaching role, anytime a student asks me a question, I immediately have my own experience in which to share with you that will hopefully benefit your life and give you some insight and how you can apply these teachings to your own life. And that's my only goal at this point, is to be the very, very, very deepest practitioner possible so that people can have an example and say, okay, that's how to practice the teachings. And then you guys can pull any of these teachings into your life as you choose, at whatever amount, at whatever time, whatever way that you feel is appropriate. I'm just setting up all these different resources and ways of you to interact and gain access to the teachings and seek guidance. I'm setting all that up and then letting you decide, is it online classes? Is it in-person classes? Is it reading a book? Is it watching a YouTube video? Is it a podcast? Is it an audio book? What is it? How is it that you would like access to these teachings? Because in the past, you know, someone like me in a Western audience, there was nowhere to go. There was nowhere to go to get access to the teachings that I knew of. So now what I've done is made the teachings extremely accessible for free to anybody who's interested in accessing them. And for me, that's the best way that I can turn this life of misery that I experienced for 44 years and now two years of practicing the way that I have to now offer that back to all of humanity in a way that's accessible and completely free for you to be able to learn and practice and see the results for yourself. And for me, that's the very best thing I feel that I can be doing with the rest of this life. So I wanna thank you for choosing to dedicate your time and effort to learning and practicing these teachings. I'm dedicated to sharing them with you and if you're dedicated to learning and practicing them, I'm not going anywhere as far as I know. 
So, of course, I'm impermanent, and at some point I will go somewhere, I will die. But until that time, I will be available for you to learn and practice the teachings. And then by the time that I do die, hopefully there's going to be lots and lots of people available to continue to share these teachings worldwide throughout the world. So from my viewpoint, these teachings don't go away from here. From when the Buddha taught and they slowly started to disappear more and more and more and more for 2,500 years, from this point forward, they only become more and more available in the world and they only shine brighter and brighter and brighter for more and more and more people to have access to them. So you now have access to the teachings, you have access to a teacher, you have the ability to learn and practice these teachings. The only thing standing between you and enlightenment is your own dedication, your own commitment. That's it. Everything else, all the other obstacles have been removed for you in terms of access to the teachings and access to a teacher. So learn and practice, seek guidance, and you're only going to see as you learn the truth and you gain more and more wisdom, the condition of the mind is going to just keep improving more and more. So thank you for joining. Thank you, Max, for hosting this. Hopefully you guys find some value in just learning a little bit of my life. We could probably talk for days and days and days, getting into a lot of the detail of what I've actually experienced in my life. But now maybe you guys have just a little bit more insight into David as a teacher. But know that I've been down there in the darkness, in the deep, 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 deep darkness, five point restraints with injections going into my body to get me out of a psychosis, straight jackets, right? People against me, people mocking me, people criticizing me, people having expectations of me, people pushing me down, people telling me that you're never going to amount to anything in this world over and over and over and over and over, just negativity after negativity. But the thing is, is that you can overcome all of that. You can overcome all of it through your own choices, your own dedication, your own commitment. So on Sunday at nine o'clock, we're gonna restart the group learning program from the beginning of the book. And we're gonna go all the way back through, taking our time to explore each of these chapters that are gonna lead you on the path to enlightenment as you develop your life practice. So thank you so much for joining and we'll see you next time. Sawadikhap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.